Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff Wittellis, and I've got something to confess here to you guys. I just started the radio, and I talked for almost half an hour to myself, not realizing it wasn't broadcasting. <laughs> and I figured out what the problem was. I have a hardwired connection I usually use for radio, so this way if there's any kind of hiccups in the Wi-Fi that I won't get disconnected. Well, that ended up backfiring on me because for whatever reason, the router that it's hooked up to is having issues. And I didn't know this, but once I took it off of the hardwired connection, it was working again. But I was on the hardwired connection for the entire time I was broadcasting the first half hour of the show. And then I saw that I was not broadcasting and then I saw people were messaging me with like a within like a minute of when the show started that it was not actually broadcasting. So that's not good. So we have some complications here, most notably that the free roll, which I always like to announce on air, was going while we weren't broadcasting. So I've made an executive decision that even though nine people got in the free roll, and I apologize for those of you that didn't hear it announced, but it was posted the announcement. I've decided I'm not going to restart it. It's got five of the nine people left in there. But uh, while we would have had a bigger field if the show really started, and I didn't think it was starting, but since we had nine people playing, and since it's already more than half an hour in, I'm just going to let it finish out, and we're going to pay the places as I promised. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but it's the usual uh, $25, $15, and $10 we're giving away. And it was... $50 from Eric Benzamokin, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Eric. And I guess I won't go into the whole speech about qualifying for it because it's already going and you can't get in anymore. But I will pay it out, so no worries there. And I'll just make sure next week to verify that the hardwired connection is working properly. So I just wasted half an hour of my life talking to nobody. That was nice. I mean, I guess it could have been worse. I could have discovered like two hours in. I would have really gone nuts. Like, I, I don't know what, what I would have done if I saw that I'd been talking into the air for two hours. Then I may not have had the motivation to start over and do it again. But since it was only half an hour and we were mainly just doing intro stuff, I did a little more than intro. But I was, I stopped right when I realized this happened, of course. And we're, we're now on wireless, so I think it should be fine the rest of the way. And we'll just let everything stand. Everything you're going to hear me say now is for the second time. Feels kind of weird, but to you guys, it is all new. And hey, that's the way it goes. <laughs> what a fail. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That phone number is 702-430-1808-702. 430-1808. That is the Mount Charleston line. And it is an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin. And it forwards to me wherever I go. You can text the main number of the show. Don't text the Mount Charleston line, but you can text the main number. 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime, before, during, or after the show. And I will respond to you. You're welcome to text criticism of the show or what you like about the show or something you'd like to see me cover or really just anything. You can ask me a question. You can ask for my opinion. Do not be shy. Do not be afraid to text me. In fact, you can even text me and just tell me that you're out there and that you've been listening. I'll be happy to hear from you. 775-372-8355. You can text me 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week. And that's also our main call-in number. There is the call to listen line. The call to listen line is very simple. You just call up and you listen. It is a way to listen to the show. If you don't have or want to use a computer, a smartphone, an app, whatever it might be, it's just very simple. You use any phone that can call the United States and you just listen. It never buffers and never freezes. does not require a computer, a smartphone, an app, a data plan, the internet. And even if you have a bad connection, it'll work just fine. 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189. is the call to listen line. It has been around for 70 years, and more than 2 million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line. And we're approaching 3 million minutes listened to on the call to listen line. But listen to your heart's content. I don't care. I don't pay by the minute. So feel free to use it. 518-931-1189. And when we're not live, then it broadcasts streaming reruns of random shows it picks out from our close to 11-year existence. If you want to find us in the archives, we have a lot of different apps where you can listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio in podcast form. You can listen on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, Spotify. By the way, Spotify has clickable timestamps where you can jump right to the topics I list. So if you don't have time to listen to the whole long show, you can just jump directly to where you want to listen. The Bullhorn app, which is similar to Spotify. In fact, it also has its own call-to-listen line where you can listen to the archives in call-to-listen format. Then we're on the TuneIn app, which you can use to listen live or in the archives. We have two different entries on there. And we are also on Stitcher. Finally, you can find us on Amazon Alexa by saying, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say those words very slowly. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. You can also find us on Audible, which Audible, which uh, is owned by Amazon as well. You can download or play the MP3 file of each show, and that will work from any device without any other kind of player nece- necessary. Just go to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert and click on the little graphic for the way you want to listen, and it'll be right there for you to do. A lot of different ways to listen. If there's something else you want to be supported by Poker Fraud Alert, let me know, and I will have it added there as long as it doesn't cost too much and it's not too much trouble. We are not on YouTube yet, but maybe sometime in the future. It's just not an easy thing to do. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you're welcome to go in the chat room and chat with anyone else that's listening live that is in there. If we're not listening live, or if you're not listening to us live, then don't bother because there won't be anybody there. Here is the agenda, and then we will get going. Remember last week, it was before the election, and I talked about how the Republicans are going to have a big election and win a lot of seats, and I talked about how Democrats need to change in order to be competitive in future races? Well, all I can say to that is... Yeah, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. Republicans had a very, very disappointing midterm election, and I will give you my opinion on that election and why it happened and what Republicans can do going forward. Then we will cover the sports betting propositions in California, 26 and 27, which failed miserably. I mean, they didn't just fail. They lost by a ton. I'll tell you why and what California needs to do if they want sports betting to finally come to the state. 
Then we have a major thing to cover here. We have something we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to spend a long time talking about it. And I'm going to take it apart so you guys can understand it. A very big story. Robbie Jade... No, no, no. Robbie Jade nothing. We're not, we're not doing that this time. There's no Robbie Jade anything here on this episode. It's going to be a Robbie Jade Lou, Garrett Adelstein, and Hustler Casino Live free show. We're not going to have any talk of that this week. I promise you. But we will have major coverage of the FTX crypto scandal, which is something that popped up in this past week. And there's a lot of different elements to it. So we're going to talk a lot about this. And even if you don't understand it well, even if you're not a crypto person, I'm going to try to break it down so you guys can all understand it. Because that's what I'd like to do for the audience here. I'd like to take topics that may not be very easy to understand or niche topics that a lot of you just feel there's too much of a learning curve to have to be able to get up to speed to really know what's going on. I'd like to be able to break these things down to where the average person can understand without doing any further research. So we're going to do that here. But even for those that do know a lot about crypto, I think you'll find parts of this segment valuable as well. So we're going to do a major coverage of the FTX crypto scandal, which in fact has a connection to the poker community, like everything seems to these days. Not just that we had people who lost money on there. I mean, a real connection. All right, hang on a second. I'm interrupting. This is me from the future. And I'm telling you, Todd from the past, that we are not going to do the FTX topic on this episode in the archives. Because what I did was I took the three hours or so we spent talking about it and I moved it to its own separate episode. So you can go find that. It's already there in the archives. I posted it, in fact, a few days before this episode. So go check it out. I cut that out of this episode and moved it there and split this whole thing into two parts. So if you're looking for the FTX stuff, it's not in this one, but this one is containing everything else. And if you want the FTX stuff, go find it in the archives. Then we're going to talk about the unfortunate passing of someone who is significant to me, but was not a family member and was not a Poker Fraud Alert forum member and was not a person involved with this show and was not a listener to this show. However, this was the person who founded a website that became a forum that eventually landed in my hands and changed names, and now I am the one running it. I'm talking about Vegas Casino Talk, and the original founder, when it was called Alan Best Buys, Alan Mendelson is his name, he passed away at the age of 70, which I was sad to hear about, and I will tell you about Alan, I'll play a little clip of him tell you about his life beyond forums, because there's a lot to him. And I'll tell you how I got involved with him and with his forum to where it ended up in my hands. I hate mobile versions of websites. They're always worse. They're always less featured. They're always buggy. They're always difficult to use. It's easy to screw things up. I hate using mobile or app versions of a website. The website is almost always better, full-featured compared to the app. Just the mobile and app versions of things tends to be awful. And I hoped it would improve over the years, but it hasn't. In fact, maybe it's even gotten worse. So I really avoid anything mobile, but sometimes there's no choice. Like if you're just not at home and you don't have your laptop with you. 
So that was the case when I placed a sports bet on a lousy mobile version of a sports book, and I ended up accidentally placing a bet that was five times the amount that I actually wanted to place. So what happened? Did I win? Did I lose? I will tell you. Speaking of winning and losing, Sean Deeb attempted to organize a group of poker players to buy a massive number of Powerball tickets when the prize was $2 billion, which was a record. And he got the odds all the way down to less than 1 in 6,500 that they would win, which is pretty amazing because the odds on one ticket was like 1 in 224 million. So he got it to 1 in around 6,500. Did they win? I think you know they didn't, but did they win anything? I will tell you how that went and what Sean Deeb got out of doing the whole thing. Then I have two updates for you on criminal matters. First on Jeffrey Morris, who is the sex offender, pervert, career criminal scumbag who murdered poker player Susie Zhao in Michigan. He was convicted for this murder, and we already reported that on this show. But he has been sentenced now. I'll tell you what his sentence is. Then we have an update on our eBay story. Remember we did that long eBay segment about how seven eBay employees terrorized a couple who did a long-time blog about eBay because they didn't like what the couple was writing about eBay. So they actually set out to terrorize them. And then the ultimate plan was for eBay to ride in on the white horse and say, we're going to save you from these people terrorizing you. And then the hope was that they would think positively enough about eBay for saving them from these people harassing them. It was actually eBay itself that they would stop writing bad things about eBay. It was a very dumb plan and they ended up all getting caught and the feds got involved. So now there have been sentences handed down for six of the seven defendants. I will tell you what the sentences were and I'll briefly go over what the story was and what each of these people did. You've probably heard about Mattress Mac and his $75 million win on a bet for the Astros, the Houston Astros, to win the World Series, which they did. That was a record, a record for a sportsbook payout for a single bet. However, is there more to this story? The answer is yes, and I'll tell you what it is. A Formula One race is going to be taking place on the Las Vegas Strip on November 18th. There's actually going to be race cars zipping around the Strip, and it's going to be closed to all of the traffic, of course, do you want to get a hotel there? Well, I hope not because the prices are exorbitant. So I'll tell you about some of the hotel rates for that week, which is, you know, it's only five days away now. And I will tell you about this weird race that's taking place on the Strip. Final poker and gambling topic. Massachusetts Gaming is giving a hard time to Encore because apparently they're not hiring enough women. They promised they're going to hire 50% women and they did not. I'll tell you what gaming is mad about, and I will tell you why there are such strict requirements on them to do such hires. Then we'll do a COVID topic regarding second COVID infections. A new study says that they can be a lot worse than the first. That's our show for tonight. Maybe we'll pick up a co-host at some point. I have to imagine they're sleeping now, but who knows? We might pick up one. Okay, so we had... An election. I said on the last show that Republicans would be victorious, that this would be 
1994 like midterm. That's when Republicans had sweeping victories everywhere in the House, in the Senate, in the gubernatorial races. And in 94, it was a rejection of the way Bill Clinton was governing and the way Democrats in general were governing and ideas that they had that they wanted to implement. Also, it was a rejection on how Democrats were handling major issues of the day, like violent crime, which in the 90s was very, very bad. So I predicted we were going to have another 1994, 28 years later. We had all the signs that were here. Joe Biden was very unpopular. We had very high inflation. Just like in 94, we had high crime. Not as high as 94, but still a lot higher than it used to be in recent years. And... Also, Democrats married themselves to causes that a lot of people can't relate to unless they're on the political left. Things like transgender people in women's sports, things like bailing out all student debt, things like defund the police, things like non-prosecution of entire classes of crimes. These are very unpopular. And they're just about exclusively supported by Democrats. Also, people were pissed off about the school closures during COVID that were mostly supported by Democrats. There were a lot of things that have angered people about Democrats. There's a lot of things that people are blaming Democrats for that are not as good today as they were a few years ago. Crime in a lot of big cities is much higher. There were COVID restrictions way past when there should have been. And a lot of students had major learning loss and people felt like their freedoms were eroded and people are watching children get transgender treatments before they're old enough to make a legal decision about anything else, even minor things, but they can get these major surgeries and treatments. And uh, then there's the support of late-term abortion for any reason that many Democrats uh, are behind. There's a lot of things that are very unpopular with independents and moderates that Democrats seem to believe. I'm not saying all Democrats, but a lot of Democrats do. So I really thought that in addition to this being a midterm election where typically the party in power loses, that if you add up everything together, everything everyone's unhappy about, the unpopular president, the unpopular Congress... The inflation, just everything. Like This looked like it was going to be a beatdown. But it wasn't. In fact, it was one of the most disappointing midterm elections in recent history. It was the worst midterm election for the party out of power in 20 years. And 20 years ago, the reason that was is because George W. Bush was still somewhat riding high off of the public's appreciation of his handling of 9-11. The country was kind of rallying behind him at that point even people who normally didn't support him. But we didn't have a factor like that this time. So why in 2022 did Republicans not have a big election? In fact, they had a very disappointing election. In fact, they're probably going to lose one Senate seat. Forget getting the Senate. They're probably going to lose a Senate seat. And in the House, they're going to squeak by with a majority when they were so close already to a majority. But here's what's even more amazing. Let's go back to 2020. 2020, on the surface, looked like a successful election for Democrats, because what happened? The very hated Donald Trump lost. Joe Biden won. 
So that was a success, right? Well, no. Because it was expected that as long as Biden wins, that he will carry all of these House candidates in these close races over the finish line. So if Biden wins, then it should also be a beatdown by the Democrats against the Republicans in these House races. Well, it wasn't. Not only didn't Democrats win House seats in 2020, they lost House seats. They lost a lot of House seats in 2020, even with Biden winning. And what doesn't get enough discussion is the fact that in 2020, not a single House seat of the, I think, 435 seats in the U.S., not a single House seat that was projected by the polls to be slightly in favor of Republicans, not a single one of them went to Democrats. Not a single one. Yet Republicans took a number of House seats in 2020 that were projected to go to Democrats. In fact, some that were considered safe Democrat actually went to Republican, even in states like California. Seriously, go look at the 2020 election. You'll see that not a single House seat that was even slightly projected to go to Republicans didn't. And this is when Joe Biden won. This is when 81 million people showed up to vote Trump out of office. So the more intelligent Democrats were looking at this going, ah, this is no reason to celebrate because you know what this election says? This election says that people showed up because they hated Trump, but you know who they also seem to hate? Us, the Democrats. So they hate both Trump and us. And that's why the Democratic president won because he was against Trump, but everybody else who wasn't against Trump didn't do well. That was a bad sign. So they were shuddering and saying, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen in the 2022 midterms? Because if we did this badly when we had all these people coming out to vote against Trump, what's going to happen when Trump is no longer on the ballot and a lot of these people will stay home? What's going to happen to us then? Well, imagine piling on top of that all the discontent that people have today over various things that really were not an issue back in November 2020. I mean, yeah, we had COVID then, but there's a lot of things that have happened since then that people are very unhappy about, and they're unhappy with Democrats. So this should have translated to a horrible election for Democrats, but it didn't. Let's go to 2021. 2021, there was an election. It just wasn't a major election. But if you remember, Glenn Youngkin won the gubernatorial election in Virginia, which is a blue state. And he won it pretty easily. And Democrats are going, oh, crap. If we're losing now in Virginia, this is looking really bad. And Virginia wasn't just an outlier. In New Jersey, which is a very blue state, there was almost a gubernatorial victory there as well, which was shocking. That looked like it was going to be a landslide. A complete nobody candidate almost won in New Jersey in 2021. That was really scary. That was worse than the Virginia situation, which is sort of a swing state, Virginia. It's more blue than red, but sort of a swing state. New Jersey is not. And for a no-name, nobody candidate on the Republican side who didn't really get very much money behind him to almost beat the Democrat for governor really showed there was a lot of discontent. So it was all set up. It was all set up perfectly for the Democrats to just take a tremendous beating. And I fully expected it. And in fact, I bet on it. And then it didn't happen. So why didn't it happen? Why did Republicans have such a poor election? 
why do they actually lose most likely a Senate seat? There's going to be a runoff in Georgia, which we'll talk about shortly. But if they don't win that runoff, they're going to lose a Senate seat. And at best, they're going to break even with Senate seats and not have the Senate because it'll be 50-50. And then Kamala Harris is the deciding vote. And in the House, it looks like they'll pick up a few seats, barely get the majority, and that'll be it. When it was predicted that they might have a 35-seat majority, maybe even 40, prior to the election. So what happened? What about candidates like Carrie Lake in Arizona that were thought they were going to run away with it? And now she's probably going to lose. Very close, but she's probably going to lose. What about the gubernatorial candidate in Oregon, the first Republican governor in Oregon in 40 years? That wasn't even close. What happened? Was it the abortion thing? Somewhat. But it was a lot more than the abortion thing. I have complained for 12 years that Republicans have a major problem with candidate selection. I saw this in 2010 when the Tea Party was prominent. Remember the Tea Party? That was kind of the precursor to the MAGA movement today. But the Tea Party got a lot of bad candidates nominated on the Republican side. The one that was most disappointing was the one who faced Harry Reid in the 2010 election. I really wanted to see Harry Reid get knocked out. I wanted to see him retired that way rather than retiring on his own terms, which he ended up doing. But they put up a horrible candidate named Sharon Angle, who was crazy. And even though Reid was really unpopular in Nevada, and everyone in Nevada knew he was corrupt, and he was basically really disliked by most people, even Democrats, Sharon Angle was so crazy, no one could vote for her. So Reed won the election, and then he retired on his own terms. I hated seeing that. I lived in Vegas. I hated seeing that. But there were several other bad candidates in 2010. Republicans ended up throwing away five Senate seats they could have won that year. So even though they had a good election in 2010, in the midterms, they threw away five Senate seats they could have won. And that hurt me to see as a Republican. Eventually, the Tea Party kind of died out, but it more gave way to the MAGA movement, which was kind of similar, except this one was headed by Donald Trump, whereas the Tea Party movement had no real figurehead to it. But it's along the same lines, and it had the same problems, in that a lot of really lousy candidates were being nominated in the primary, and then would have a hard time winning the general election. Also, these candidates would give Republicans a bad name in general. They would be too extreme. They would have too many wacky ideas. And it just didn't resonate with the general public. And since they were louder than the more mainstream Republicans, a lot of people incorrectly saw Republicans as that and said, oh, well, how could I ever vote for a Republican if this is the way they are? Not realizing that most Republicans weren't like that. So I hated seeing these bad candidates get nominated And that really is the big Achilles heel of the modern Republican Party. Now, the Democrats, they have a different Achilles heel. Their Achilles heel is the marrying themselves to unpopular and stupid and crazy social issues, the woke social issues that really nobody outside of those on the left likes very much. So that's a big vulnerability Democrats have. Republicans' vulnerability is just nominating horrible candidates. And that was definitely the problem this time around. There were a lot of bad candidates. And then what happened was these bad candidates 
dragged everybody else down. And furthermore, there were other complicating factors, such as the abortion issue. So let's break all of this down. First of all, the election denial thing has been a disaster for the party. And as soon as it happened, I knew it would be a disaster for the party. As soon as Trump started this crap after November 2020, I knew it would be a disaster for the party. Now, if Trump wants to say something was unfair about that election, I can tell you what was sort of unfair. And that was that the media and social media companies basically conspired to put out information that was negative about him and suppressing information that was negative about Biden. One of the biggest instances of this was the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story that you couldn't share on social media without getting banned. Even the New York Post got banned for posting the story. And this was like a week before the election. And it turned out to be a true story. It was censored for being, quote, Russian disinformation, which it was not. It was true information that had nothing to do with Russia. It was all true. And that was really, really bad. But even without that, the media put out so many hit pieces on Trump. And yes, some of the criticism of Trump was deserved, but some of it wasn't. And Biden did not get the same scrutiny. So the media was very, very biased and people were just hammered every day with so much propaganda against Trump that, yes, it makes it a lot harder to win the election. Even though Trump was very flawed, it was unfair to him. Now, that part I will agree was unfair, but that's not really what he's complaining about. If he complained about that, I'd say, yeah, Trump, you kind of got a raw deal there, and I can sympathize with you. But that really hasn't been his complaint. His complaint has been that the election itself was rigged, that the election was fraudulent, that he really won, and the election was stolen from him. And that's not true. It didn't happen. In fact, the margins that he lost were too large for that to be the case. If he lost one key state by a few hundred votes, and had he won that state, then he would have won the election. Then if he were to be making allegations about voter fraud, and it seemed like the allegations had some truth to them, then he would totally have a point. But that's not what happened here. He lost by tens of thousands of votes in these states, and it was in multiple states. So believe me, there was no steal. The election, even though I didn't like the result, even though I was not a Trump fan by that point, I still wanted him to beat Biden. But I didn't like the results. I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't want Biden to be president. But as soon as Biden won, I agreed that Biden was supposed to win. He was the rightful winner. He got more votes. He got votes in the right places. He won enough states. He was the president. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. He was the president. He was the rightfully elected president. I believed it then. I believe it now. So this election was not stolen from Trump. The media tried as hard as they could to brainwash people into voting against Trump, and they were successful, and so did the social media companies, but the election itself was not rigged. And putting out that message makes you look like a sore loser. It makes the party look like a sore loser, and it makes it look like that Republicans want to overturn any election where they don't like the results. And it went beyond Trump. If it were just Trump being a crybaby and then the party didn't agree with him and everyone just moved on, then it wouldn't matter so much. But you had politicians in positions of power saying they agreed that Trump had actually won and the election was stolen from him. A lot of them were probably saying it just to kiss his ass so he would continue to give them support and they'd get reelected. But still, 
whatever the reason they were saying it. And it's a terrible look because it makes it look like that Republicans feel that any election they don't like, they should be able to overturn. And that scares people because people want to feel like that our election results are going to be respected. Yeah, the funny thing is that Democrats have done the same thing. After Stacey Abrams lost to Kemp the first time, not this election where she lost by such a wide margin that uh, she can't even begin to, com- to claim that uh, she was cheated, but she lost by 55,000 votes the first time around, and she claimed that it was a result of voter suppression. She claimed that she was the rightful governor of Georgia, and it wasn't just her. A lot of Democrats were saying this. This was a popular narrative on the left before Trump's election denial. This obviously was before Trump lost in 2020. It's not like it was a few crazy Democrats making this claim. A lot of Democrats, if you ask them, do you think that Stacey Abrams was cheated in Georgia and she should have been the governor because of voter suppression? Most of them would have said yes. And that's disturbing, too. She lost by 55,000 votes. There's no way 55,000 votes got suppressed in Georgia. Just like there's no way that all those votes that Biden won by in the swing states were somehow stolen. So both of these claims were equally stupid. So both parties do it, but because Trump is a lot more prominent than Stacey Abrams, and because his movement is a lot bigger than anyone following Stacey Abrams, it got a lot more attention. Republicans should not have gone along with this. Nobody should have gone along with this. They should have let Trump whine all he wanted. And if you don't want to directly go against him for your political career, if you don't want to say, no, Trump, stop being a crybaby, fine, but don't join him. There were a number of Republican politicians that didn't comment on it, that just kind of let him do his thing. It didn't say either way. Now, that's fine. But what's not fine is giving it any kind of validation. And a lot of them did. And that scared people this time around. Democrats kept hammering the message home that this election is the most important of your lifetime, which is bullshit. They say every time, but it's the most important of your lifetime because democracy is on the ballot, which is really foolish because how can democracy on be on the ballot if you're voting for it? <laughs> if if democracy is the problem, if that's the potential problem here, then how are we voting on it? It doesn't make any sense. But that, that was the claim. If you elect Republicans, that we will never have democracy again in this country. And really, it's a widespread problem in both parties. The party that was denying that Stacey Abrams lost the first time around cannot be the one saying that democracy is on the ballot. But that aside, that was the message they were putting out, and it worked. A lot of people thought, yes, democracy is on the ballot. We can't vote for these Republicans who deny elections. In fact, it was pointed out that every single secretary of state who went along with Trump's claims that the vote was rigged was voted out of office this time. People don't like it. They don't like any election deniers. So if you denied the election even lightly did it, you lost. For example, Adam Luxalt in Nevada, who in fact, uh, as I've mentioned before in this show, not only was he running for Senate this time, but he was the one who prosecuted Brian Mikan for running seals with clubs, only to pull back his prosecution and let him off with a slap on the wrist when Mikan's expensive attorneys got involved. But, you know, that all aside... Luxalt was not a crazy candidate, and he wouldn't have been a bad candidate, except at some point he did go along with the election was stolen narrative before backing away from it. 
Anyone who ever said that did not do well. And Lixalt lost. And by the way, it's not that a Republican couldn't win in Nevada because Joe Lombardo, a Republican, is going to be the governor. Steve Sisolak lost. Now, some of that was because Sisolak was unpopular with some people because of shutting down Nevada for too long and decimating the tourism industry during COVID. But it wasn't all that. It was also that Lombardo was a better candidate and that Luxalt scared some people with his past election denial. So the election denial thing was huge. The abortion thing was huge, too. Now, you can say, wait a minute, the abortion thing was a Supreme Court thing. How can Republicans do anything about that? Well, first of all, even though the Supreme Court is supposed to be nonpartisan, it's not. It's very partisan. And if Republicans in power had made it clear to the Supreme Court that they didn't want to see Roe versus Wade overturned, it probably wouldn't have. So, yes, the Republican establishment did have some influence there. But even after this happened... There's a right way to handle the abortion thing and a wrong way to handle the abortion thing. So once Roe versus Wade went away, that didn't mean that you couldn't get an abortion in the U.S. What that meant is it was up to each state to decide, which I actually agree with, by the way. I think it is correct that every state should decide. However, that also gives room for states to make stupid decisions. And some states, some red states, decided we're going to make abortion completely illegal. In fact, there was some talk in some states about not only making it illegal, but making it illegal even in cases of rape and incest, which is really crazy. I don't believe that's the law on any books, but it was being discussed. But even without that, to completely make abortion illegal as soon as this went away, to have some red states go directly there, is such a shock to the system. And it's something that has stood for 50 years. And all of a sudden now that's been overturned and some states are immediately going in a very extreme direction, that turns people off as well. The reason that Roe versus Wade came to be a thing in 1972 was because it was generally understood that even if you were against abortion, that it really wasn't practical to make it illegal, that all this led to were back alley illegal abortions that were very dangerous and that it really is a hard thing to make illegal and to prosecute because it's very hard when a pregnancy just ends to know how it happened. So if you have like a five-year-old kid and that kid just disappears, then you're going to have a lot of questions asked of you. Where'd your kid go? <laughs> like This is something you can't just get rid of your kid and expect no consequences. There will be a lot of investigation as to where your kid went, and you're probably going to be arrested for murder if you kill your kid and, and try to hide that you did it. However, a lot of pregnancies end in miscarriage, like 30%. In fact, a lot of pregnancies, you can't even tell that a woman is pregnant for the first few months. So it's pretty easy for a woman to get an abortion, an illegal abortion, before anyone even knows she's pregnant, or even if people do know she's pregnant, she could claim there was a miscarriage, and there's really no way to be able to tell whether she really had a miscarriage or not. So that is why it is too hard to legislate this, and it becomes something where people are going to go seek these abortions in an unsafe way, and 
it's just not a good thing. We we had this in the 60s, and it was something that had to be stopped. It was something that uh, there had to be a law to address the situation. So that's why Roe versus Wade became a thing in 1972 that made abortion legal. But the general compromise with those on the other side and with society was that this was not going to be used as a form of birth control. This wasn't going to be used to kill fully formed babies when women would change their minds. That this would be something that would really be used as the last resort. A teenage girl has sex with her boyfriend and gets pregnant and isn't ready to have a kid. Or something else where someone gets pregnant and it's really, really, really a bad time for them. And they end up aborting the child. And regardless of how you feel about abortion uh, personally, you may be against it personally. At least if this could be limited to early term and you understand it's going to happen anyway and it's very hard to police if it's illegal, then you can kind of understand why it's in the law to where this is allowed. And at the same time, it protects from things like late-term abortions where a woman just decides in seven months that uh, she doesn't want the baby anymore, maybe because she's poor and her boyfriend left her and now she's 22 and she just wants to start over and she doesn't want to be burdened with this baby, uh, that she can't go just go abort it, but this fully formed baby that can live outside the womb. So in 1972, the spirit of Roe versus Wade was to only have the end of pregnancies early and to not use abortion as a form of birth control. But it evolved over the years to become much worse than that. And now there's a number of states where it is completely legal to have late-term abortion on demand. And I say this, people go, no, 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 this is a stupid Fox News talking point. No, it is legal. Go look it up. It is legal in many states. I think 20 states it's legal to get a late-term abortion either on demand or with a very, very flimsy reason. I'm not talking about a late-term abortion when the mom's life is in danger or the baby's life is in danger or the baby's going to come out uh, with major, major defects. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just for very flimsy reasons. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, I have anxiety. Oh, I just don't want it anymore. 20 states where you can do this. And there's more every year where this becomes permitted. In fact, in California, they just passed a proposition making this legal. And it's going to be in the state constitution. So that's the extreme position on the left. And that's not very popular with the general public. But the extreme position on the right, which is no abortions at all, that's also very extreme. You you can't have that. And that's even more unpopular. So what Democrats did is they kept hammering this message home. They kept saying that if you elect Republicans, you're not going to be able to get an abortion. Now, who cared about that? Did men care about it? No, not really. Did married women care about it? No, not really, because if they get pregnant, okay, no problem. They just have another kid. Do older women, whether married or not, care about it? No, because they can't get pregnant. So who cared about it? Well, single women under 40, because single women under 40 would think, well, I don't want to have an abortion, but I want to have that option open to me. Even if I'm generally pro-life, I still want to have this option open to me. I don't like the idea of it being taken away. I've had it my whole life. I, I don't like the idea of now just it's going to be illegal. 
I'm in my childbearing years. Let's say I have sex with a dude who's kind of a scumbag and I don't want to be with him and I don't want to procreate with him and we have sex and I get pregnant. I, I want to be able to get rid of it, they think. And this drove a lot of them to vote Democrat, either to show up at the polls when otherwise they would not have or ones kind of in the middle politically who decided to vote Democrat this time for that reason. So between that and the election denial nonsense, you had a lot of additional people voting Democrat this time. Think about this. In 2020, when Republicans had to deal with Trump being unpopular and 81 million people showing up to vote against him, they did much better in House races than in 2022 with no Trump and with the Democrat president being very unpopular. How did that happen? I just told you. It's the election denial it's the abortion, and it's the bad candidates. I'm talking about Herschel Walker in Georgia, who had a ton of personal baggage and also, frankly, isn't very bright. We had Mehmet Oz, a carpetbagger from a different state that pretended he was from Pennsylvania and was a basically TV con man that people saw right through, to where they actually voted for a guy who had a stroke and couldn't put a sentence together in coherent fashion over Mehmet Oz. Imagine losing to a guy who had a stroke <laughs> who basically is almost non-functional, and he beat Mehmet Oz. That's pretty amazing. Talking about Blake Masters in Arizona, who was very extreme and people didn't like it. Arizona is a state where extremity has not been rewarded in a long time. That's why John McCain was popular there. He was never extreme. He was a very moderate Republican. You've got to be moderate in Arizona. Look at the Democrat side. They've got Kristen Sinema, who has sided with Republicans in a lot of issues and didn't vote along with the other Democratic senators. And this was very, very frustrating to the Democratic Party over the last two years. She's a very moderate person politically. And She's from Arizona, so you can't be extreme in Arizona, and Blake Masters lost, and uh, Carrie Lake's probably going to lose too. Then you had candidates like J.D. Vance, who squeaked by on the Republican side only because they were in a very red state. Ohio has become very red, so that's the only reason he won there. Otherwise, he would have lost. You had Don Balduck in New Hampshire in what was otherwise a very winnable seat, and instead he got clobbered. He was another election denier. You can't nominate crap candidates and expect to win, especially in 2022 when there's some issues out there that are already kind of riling people up that they don't like. I'm talking about the abortion thing, the election denial thing. You've already got that stuff out there that's kind of an albatross around the neck of Republicans. So then you can't put crap candidates that have unpopular positions on these issues, it's really going to drag them down. And that's what happened this time. And then it basically dragged the whole party down. Now, the Republicans that did well were the ones who also did a good job governing. Ron DeSantis won by about 20 points in Florida in what used to be a swing state. He won by 20 points. Mike DeWine in Ohio, who was very much a defier of Trump. He did very well and won in a landslide. Talking about the gubernatorial elections now. Yet Kemp in Georgia, 
who clobbered Stacey Abrams this time in the rematch. It wasn't even close. These were all governors who did a good job. They weren't just running on a message. They were running on their record. And none of them acted crazy. Now let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is now seen as the future of the Republican Party. Trump has fallen out of favor after this election. And I was hoping that would happen. I said the only good thing that would happen from Republicans not doing well here would be that the whole thing about nominating crazy candidates will probably be in the past. At least I hope it will be. I hope this is a harsh lesson. And number two, this is probably going to hurt Trump's chances tremendously to become the nominee in the future. He claims he has an announcement on November 15th. So we'll see if he announces he's going to run. He claimed this before the election that he's going to make the announcement on the 15th. So we'll see if that changes his announcement or if he delays it or if he still is going to run. But it's interesting seeing a lot of very pro-Trump conservative figures on social media and on YouTube and in the media turning on him now and saying, you know what? DeSantis is the future of the party. And I'm happy to see that because DeSantis should be the future of the party. DeSantis hasn't done anything crazy. He had one stupid stunt, which was sending those illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. And that's really what it was, a stunt. And it was dumb. But aside from that, everything else he's done and said has been reasonable. He has been someone who has governed from the principle of conservatism and refusing to let any sort of woke trends influence his governing. In fact, he directly goes against it and is very popular while he does so. And he does so in a common sense and easy to understand fashion. He's very good at zeroing in upon stupid Democrat talking points and then doing the opposite. And he's also just good at governing in general. He did very well during the hurricanes that have hit Florida this year. He made a lot of correct decisions during COVID, even when the media was battering him for it, insisting he was wrong. Turned out he was right. And yet he's not extreme. When it came to abortion law, he decided in Florida that they should have a 15-week limit, which is very similar to a lot of Europe. So if people say, hey, DeSantis, you're too extreme on abortion, he can say, oh, yeah? Well, then how come a lot of these left-wing European countries also have the same limit? That's a hard one to answer if you're on the other side. He has never been an election denier. He hasn't come after Trump for it. He might eventually if uh, the two of them go head-to-head in the primary, but at the moment he hasn't said anything for or against Trump's election denial. He's just stayed away from it, and that's smart. So he's a smart politician, and he also governs well, and when he makes his speeches and explains what he's doing, he explains very well. In plain English, it's very clear why he's doing what he's doing and his rationale behind it. It makes sense, and if you're not on the left, it tends to resonate with you. Even independents love him. That's why he won by 20 points. That's why he won a very blue county. He won Miami-Dade County, which is very hard to win if you're a Republican. So he is now seen as the future of the party. So you can be a conservative 
in the 2020s. You can hold conservative views. You can push back against all the recent woke talking points and extremity coming from the other side without coming off as a crazy person. You can do all of that without the election denial, without the extreme positions on abortion, and without a lot of other extreme stupidity that can come out of candidates who are on the right that just seem to always be in a contest with one another who can be seen as the most conservative. You can just be a solid conservative and yet make sense at the same time. And that's what I strive to be. I'm not a politician, but that is the way I try to be when I analyze what positions I should take. So I'm glad that DeSantis has risen now to be the star of the party and has definitely favored over Trump to be the candidate in 2024. And he's going to be tough to beat. So DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, these are the Republicans who really are the future of the party, or at least they should be. I know DeSantis is going to be, at least for the moment. And if the Republican Party wants to continue being relevant, if they want to turn this around and have a good election next time, they need to stick to positions that make sense to the middle of the country. Middle meaning the politically middle. They need to stay away from any extreme positions. They need to basically operate from a position of common sense and they'll win. Stay away from election denial. Stay away from extreme positions on abortion. Stay away from extreme positions in other areas. Make the independent and moderate voter feel that you represent them. That's the way to victory. That's always been the way to victory for the Republican Party. And it shouldn't be too hard because the Democrats say and do a lot of stupid things. They say and do a lot of things that just lack common sense. And by the way, when I say Democrats of today lack common sense, that's just not just my words. Lifelong liberal Bill Maher said that on his show recently, that Democrats lack common sense. Yet he is one. And he was speaking of the Democratic Party of today, not all Democrats. And I agree. And I've spoken to Democrats that don't lack common sense, that politically are disgusted with what has happened to their party. Much like I sometimes get disgusted with things I see out of the Republicans. So while I was disgusted with this election, long term, or at least medium term for the party, this may be a good thing. If it takes one disappointing midterm election to set everything on the right course, then I'm okay with that. I want to discuss the California propositions, 26 and 27. These were the propositions to legalize sports betting in the state of California. And you guys probably know this from listening to this show, but I always find it pretty amazing that in a state that is not philosophically opposed to gambling. This is not a red state. This is not a religious state. Like, we're not talking about Utah here, and we're not even talking about a blue state like Hawaii that just opposes gambling for other social reasons. Californians, in general, don't have a problem with gambling. Yet, gambling is not legal online in California. Sports betting, whether online or brick and mortar, is not legal in California. The only legal gambling in California 
consists of card rooms, like poker rooms, such as Commerce, The Bike, Bay 101, etc. But you can't have standard casino games there, and you can't have any kind of machines. And Indian casinos, which still have a lot of restrictions. They can't offer sports betting. They can't offer dice games. So California is way behind the rest of the nation when it comes to gambling. Most states in the nation have more permissive gambling laws than California. A lot of states now have legalized sports betting. California does not. And yet you have a state that is not opposed to gambling. So why don't we have it? Well, it's because of the infighting between the entities that can potentially offer it. And all of them take the position of, if we can't have it, no one can. We'd rather that there can't be sports betting if we can't be part of it. So it's more important to tear down the attempts to legalize it by their opponents than to get together to get it legalized. And that's going to remain the situation for a long time. That is why online poker is not legalized in California, even though online poker has had the potential to be legalized for more than 10 years now. It appeared in Nevada, legalized online poker in early 2013, so we're coming on 10 years, and yet it hasn't come to California. Now, you can say that it's been a fail and that in California it's just not going to be that lucrative. It'll be better than the other states because of the population, but it's nothing that exciting state you know, for the state to want because it's not going to bring in that much tax revenue, which is true. But what about sports betting? Sports betting can bring in a ton of tax revenue, and yet still it's not happening because of the infighting. The problem is California has two pretty strong entities that can offer sports betting if this is legalized. One group of entities would be the card rooms, like Commerce, the other would be the existing Indian casinos. And these factions are always fighting with one another. And the funny thing is the Indian tribes are not completely unified on this. There are some that have allied themselves with the card rooms. But most of the Indian tribes are on one side, and then there's a few Indian tribes on the other, along with the card rooms. And I think the racetracks are actually along with the Indian tribes. It's, a, it's kind of weird coalitions they have here. But the bottom line is they can't all just get together and try to come up with a solution that they can all like. Everybody's too greedy. Everybody wants their own version that cuts out the other. So sure enough, this is the first state ever to have two sports betting measures on the ballot that are basically competing with one another. So Proposition 26 would make sports betting allowed at these uh, Indian casinos and also at a few racetracks. And Prop 27 would have made online sports wagering allowed throughout the state, and it would be managed by large companies like DraftKings and Caesars, etc. Well, both of these failed. How badly did they fail? Proposition 27 had a yes vote of 16.8%. It lost 83.2% to 16.8%. That's a complete beatdown. It lost by 67 freaking points. Talk about not even close. Now, 26 did better, but it still got killed. 26 lost 69.2 to 30. 
0.8. So it lost by almost 39 points. So these both got clobbered so badly that it looked like we're not even close to ever getting sports betting legalized in this state unless it's passed by the legislature. But if it's by a ballot measure, I guess forget it. But how did this happen? Remember, I told you that the state, when I say the state, I don't mean the government, but I mean the citizens of the state are not anti-sports betting and they're not anti-gambling. So how could something like 27 lose by 69 points or 67 points? And how could 26 lose by 39 points? How, how could you have these huge losses if people in the state are pro-gambling? Well, it has to do with negative advertising. See, the 27 side hated 26 so much because that was their competition that they spent most of their money hammering 26 with negative ads. And the 26 side hated 27 so much that they hammered 27 with negative ads. And in fact, the 26 side had more money or put more money into it. So they had more negative ads about 27 than vice versa. But both of them had a ton of negative ads. But you know what you didn't see much of? Positive ads. You didn't see many ads telling you why you should vote yes on 26 or yes on 27. It was mostly ads telling why you should vote no on the other proposition paid for by proponents of the competing proposition. That's how obsessed they were with beating the other. And the reason they did this was that if both of them passed, there was a good chance that only the one with more votes would be considered valid. So they were both super paranoid. Hey, what if people pass this, but the other one does better? We can't allow that. We have to make sure we get the most votes. The only way we can do that is by tearing down the other proposition. Now you saw the results. But even before the proposition thing came up in 2022, I saw the same thing play out with online poker. We've talked about it before on this show, where a bunch of Indian tribes made a partnership with poker stars to run poker star software if poker were to become legalized in California in an online venue. It's legalized brick and mortar, but not online. Well, then you had the other side who didn't partner with PokerStars saying, wait a minute, PokerStars has the best software. We don't want to compete against that. So we're going to keep trying to push the narrative that PokerStars is not suitable to do business in California because they broke the law for five years between 2006 and 2011. So you had that infight going on and that just never got resolved. So there's no online poker in California. We have never had all the entities in California getting together and saying, you know what would be good? How about if we could all offer this? How, how about if we could all do this and not worry about competing with one another? What if commerce could say, you know what? Yes, sports betting might exist at the Indian casinos. And yes, maybe some of the degenerates in Southern California will choose to go to these Indian casinos where they can bet sports and won't come to commerce anymore. But what if we could have sports betting here too? Maybe the degenerates wouldn't leave commerce and they'd stay here. And the, maybe the Indian tribes could say, hey, yeah, people could do this online, but we could offer it online too and have one of these big companies manage it or we can manage our own. How about something where they all get together and see what's best for all of the gambling providers in the state, not just what's best for some of them. Not be paranoid about how you're going to lose business to the competitors. 
Because as long as they keep fighting each other, as long as they keep wanting the whole pie and they refuse to cut it in half, then no one's going to eat the pie. The pie is going to sit there and spoil. And that's what's happened for over a decade. It feels like it's going to be a million years until any kind of sports betting or online gambling is legal in the state of California. It's hard to picture it happening. I'm not kidding. I don't even see the path to it happening because every time there's discussion of allowing it, one of the special interests gets involved and says, no, 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 we don't like this because it doesn't help us enough. And when I say special interests, I don't mean Christians who are gambling. I don't mean people on the left who are paranoid about kids gambling. I don't mean that. I mean the entities that are currently providing gambling. Entities saying, we can't allow this. It'll create problem gambling. Yeah, sure, we run a casino. Yeah, sure, we run a card room. But hey, we don't want problem gambling. It's bullshit. They love problem gambling. That's why they're in business. But they say it so the other side loses. And as long as there's two sides to this gambling issue that are really all on the same side, then this is never going to work. Because you know what the problem is? Not everybody wants gambling in California. When I say California is a state that is pro-gambling, I don't mean every single resident. So when you combine the people who don't want to see gambling in California, you don't want to see expansion, you don't want to see extra ways you can gamble in the state, those who feel that way, you combine them with those who are influenced by those on the side of uh, offering gambling, but wanting to do it themselves and not let the competition do it, well, you just have too many people saying no at that point. There's too many reasons to say no and not enough to say yes. There's too many entities saying no and not enough to say yes. So either they have to get together and unify and get together with businesses they don't like and that they've been trying to trash for years. I'm talking about both sides of this. They can finally just kind of declare a truce and get together and try to get something passed, or they can keep fighting and it'll never pass. I haven't covered much of it recently on the show because I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of saying, oh, such and such measure is proposed in the California legislature to legalize online poker, to legalize sports betting. I don't say it because it always fails. I'm used to it failing. I, I see these promising bills that come across and I go, no, it's not gonna it's not gonna matter. It's not gonna happen here. And it doesn't. I predict it correctly. Because there's no unification. It's the opposite of unification. So it's the way it's gonna stay. And I don't know if this is ever gonna change. Maybe the complete beatdown of these two propositions will finally shake them into doing it differently. Or maybe they'll just keep on going. The only upside to this whole thing is that these offshore sports betting sites, the more reputable ones, tend to refuse to do business with states where sports betting is legal because they don't want to piss off the U.S. government. They don't want to piss off the state governments in the U.S. that they're competing with legalized interests in the country. So they kind of feel like if they stick to the areas where there is no legalized sports betting, then the government's not going to care as much, which is actually true. That's been Bovada's approach for a very long time, and they've never been busted. They've existed in some form or another for 22 years, and they've never been busted. So it's actually a working strategy. So if California were to legalize sports betting, 
especially online sports betting, I would probably get a notice from the books that I use that I can't use them anymore. So while I could trust a California sports book much more than these offshore sports books, it is nice having the variety of offshore sports books. So that's the one upside of this not being legalized. But I still would like to just see it legalized. I hate the fact that I really have nothing that is protecting me when I use these offshore sports books other than my running this show and this forum to call them out if they cheat me. And by the way, I had an issue with one of the sports books I use. I won't get into the whole thing. It was only a matter of $171, but they just outright cheated me out of $171. And they were saying no at first until I actually name dropped this show and this site and said, look, I'm going to make it very public what happened here. And they backed down. And I've done that before. And it's also been successful. I'm not saying it's going to work every time, but at least I have that. At least I do have this as one small benefit. I run this site at a loss. I don't uh, monetize this site at all. But at least when I'm in the process of getting screwed, I can sometimes drop the fact that I have this show and that I have this forum and that I have some following and that uh, it'll look very bad. So at least I have that. Most people don't have that. So it sucks not really having any kind of protection. These sites can just outright screw me and take my entire balance and there wouldn't be anything I could do about it other than bash them. So it would be nice to have a regulated site licensed in my state that I could complain to a regulator and I could sue. And I would like that, but I don't think I'm going to have it. I don't think I'll be playing online poker in California legally or betting on sports legally in California. Fortunately, I can do this personally without breaking the law. It's not illegal for me to use them, but it's illegal for these sites to run. So I'm playing on illegal offshore sites and not committing a crime while I do so, but I have no protections and it sucks. So really, I don't see this changing. Maybe they'll pleasantly surprise me, but these two sides hate each other so much that I don't see it changing. I posted a picture of this on my Twitter When I was sitting in commerce in October, I'm looking on the wall and TVs they have on the side that are usually showing some sort of sporting contest or whatever they feel like putting on there. Several of them had a giant no on 26 message. That's all I said, just big no on 26. They weren't all showing no on 26, but like several TVs on the wall of commerce were showing no on 26. By the way, not yes on 27, only no on 26. That pretty much says it all. It was important to commerce to get out that message. No on 26. All they want is for their competition to suffer. It's like a Pyrrhic victory. As long as the other side hurts, we don't care if we hurt too. I'll read you some text messages. From the 713, thanks for starting. I can now listen and finally get to sleep. (laughs) This is someone who... Noticed that we weren't really broadcasting when I thought we were. And now, now I can put him to sleep. I'm very happy I can do that for you. I'm glad I can put you to sleep the way I used to rock my son when he was an infant. From the 530, I am male and I'm strongly in favor of abortion at any stage and plenty of males are too. Think of this. Let's repeal the Second Amendment and say it's up to the states. That outrage would come from the right. Hypocrisy. 
Okay, I guess I have to answer that. No, I wouldn't want the Second Amendment repealed, but I don't see how you can say you're in favor of abortion at any stage because in the late stages, you have a real baby that can survive outside the womb. You can't say it's a clump of cells. You can't have the debate, okay, this isn't a real baby. It is a real baby. You're actually killing a real baby. And I don't really see the difference between late-term abortion and killing a baby outside the womb. Imagine if it was legal to just kill your one-month-old who's completely healthy and fine. You just don't want it anymore. I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't be for that. How is it any different to kill a baby at seven and a half months, eight months, eight and a half months, if the mom's life is not in danger and the baby's life is not in danger and the baby is healthy? How can that be legal? I can't see any world where that's okay. I understand males that are in favor of abortion early for the same reason that females are in favor of abortion early. You know, if you have sex with a girl that you don't really want to be with, you just want to have fun with her for one night and you find out she's pregnant, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to have this girl in my life forever and have a kid with half the genes from her. <laughs> and so... I don't want this, and I want to have the option to have her get rid of it if she feels the same way. I can understand if that's your position, but I can't understand a position that it's okay to kill a child that is developed enough to live outside the womb, or even anywhere close to that. From the 314, referring to my talking to myself for about half an hour on here, not broadcasting, wow, sorry, Todd, sounding good now. Okay, well, I I appreciate that you think I sound good now. It's pretty hard to do this after talking into the wind for the first half hour of the show. It feels like I've been on longer than I have because I have. Garrett, uh, hello. What would you like to say about this whole thing? Hey, Jeff. Uh, long time. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Go on. Um, sure, it's been a long time. Um, uh, I feel like in the, in the way you just said a little bit parsing words because with that whole macro point of view is minimizing their risk. How much invested at all they are, you anybody is with that. So from that standpoint, you're minimizing how much you have in and you're maximizing what you get out, the reward, risk-reward calculus. So I get that. And I'm not telling anyone in particular that whole theory in and of itself. And there we have these people run up with billions. This is not normal. Small group, getting smaller. And they're starting to be, and because of Zed Run, myself, the past since I got hit by a car in 2020, I played a lot of Zed Run, Twitter, all that, connected. I started getting guided to Twitters and handles that are Arabic. My interests are always poker, DFS, gambling things. And I'm like, man, this is out of the ordinary to me. I'm seeing it. And I know in the back end that the algorithm works in such a way that's for a reason. And I'm like, why, am I, why is this happening? One of two reasons. I either did something that I have government now watching, which exists anyway. It's not, I mean, come on, realistically, probably. But I'm not really, I don't care. But now for like a month or two, I'm starting to get guided these particular Twitters and I click them. I'm like, and then I see like a, a stage set up to look Arabic camp. I'm like, yo, this isn't normal. Anyway, so to me, it was noticeable. As the ordinary, if that makes sense. Anyway, um, so for me, but I also did get hit in that 
like I, when I got hit by a car in 2020. So I could be thinking all oh, this is going on. It's not. I well, that's what I was going to say, Garrett. Yeah, I I've been, so let me, let me say something this, here. Uh, I, I, anyway. I don't want to make this whole thing uh, too long of a segment. I want to get back to this long FTX yeah, topic. Yeah. But, but I just want to tell you this uh, from what I've observed. I'm going to be honest here, okay? Uh, I, I do think that you are imagining a lot of things that uh, aren't really happening from what I've been observing, what you've been tweeting, a lot of the stuff you've been saying, even some stuff you've said about me, which I know is, is not that bad, but like there's a lot of stuff well, you're assuming about of, me. which a few Dan's here, realistically, too. But I'm not <laughs> even really I, Dan. I, my, I, my name I'm is, sorry about mixing you on one of that. No, but I'm not even really Dan. My name is Todd. So I'm just saying here well, that... Right, exactly. I get that. <laughs> no, but, but the thing is here, anyway. I, I think a lot of this, the kind of conspiracy stuff that you've been uh, tweeting about and seeing, it might be something that has happened to you because you got in an accident maybe it caused some issues with your brain in fact i had well, issues I got in hit my- by a car i wasn't in an accident well, that's I what i mean it, right that, that's well, what i, I mean if I was a, not a false. you know what your mind can do a lot of weird things your mind can do a lot of weird things i learned this myself four years ago my mind it was different but <laughs> I, I but my mind did a lot of weird things four years ago and even though i could speak logically and i could write logically uh, there was a lot of strange stuff happening in my head where I wasn't processing things right, and I knew I wasn't processing them right, but uh, I, there was no, nothing I could do to stop it. And fortunately, I was able to get myself uh, mostly back to normal, but uh, I, it was the first time I got to see that when your brain chemistry is off, how it can screw up your perception to everything. And and I... I had this, it was a physical cause. It wasn't for anything that happened to me, much like the, the, the car hitting you was a physical cause in a different way. And uh, so I think you do, ha- it's good you recognize that. Well, I didn't that. wake up for a month. Yeah, it was pretty Yeah, cool. right. So that's, I that, understand what you're saying. that had and to be very tough on you. I, I, I am anyway. I can tell you, I've been around I, for I'm all these years. And I apologize if I'm, I'm, I understand we all high behind occurring online. So... <laughs> Sometimes I think something and it's not. I'm just telling you, Garrett, here. I'm I'm observing what you've been saying. I've been reading what you've been posting on Twitter, on on Poker Fraud Alert. I'm just saying that that what you're seeing here is not real. And uh, I I wouldn't lie to you about this. I'm being honest. I'm not part of any conspiracy. I I I never will be. I I really, I've always been straight with you here. I I remember I co-hosted a show with you here and there was, you know, people enjoyed that. People said, oh, wow, Garrett was actually a pretty good co-host. But uh, I'm telling you. I think people don't know I have a real personality. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really not that guy that I I think people assume I am on, I guess, Twitter and all. But I, it wouldn't be surprising you know, if, if you were out for a month there after getting hit. Uh, that can really More do. More than that one before I got clear-headed. Really. Yeah. So 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 of course it can cause some issues with your mind. And and so whenever you see these things, what what you should do? And I'm telling you from someone on the outside who can, who's been watching, you should do is say, wait a minute. I bet a lot of this isn't real. It feels real to me, but I bet it isn't real because <laughs> yeah, because something happened to me. Life in the future. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, see, I don't have that too. I am single now, Re- really. So it's been two and a half years. Yes, getting past it all, but there is an element where if I'm thinking or doing something, I just tweet it. Or, so there's not really that like checks and balance ex- equation thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I want to see but you get I'm better. Not a bad person. I'm not. Doing I know. I know. So I'm trying to. I'm trying to give you some good advice here. I want to see you get better. I, 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 I hear you. I, I want to see you. Uh, only tweet sane things and uh, and think sane things and get over 
you know, whatever has happened to you, because I, I even know it's a different way, but I know personally from four years ago, when your mind isn't working right, it, it can be torturous. So uh, yeah. I, I just, the fact that you can recognize... Well, everything that, changed is one of my struggles now is and it really didn't i'm not that's not just words like kind of how i get by where i where i live i moved a lot of things change <laughs> yeah so anyway but yes i am listening and i appreciate the the advice to i heard it yeah you just got to tell yourself you know you may think you're seeing these things but it's not really happening and and you just got to convince yourself to ignore it and say you know i'm just going to look at things that i can really prove that that's really obviously happening and anything that i think i see that nobody else is seeing probably isn't really happening that's, so, that's the best way to go about to it cut you off i should tell you truthfully i'm about to make a big change anyway because my house went on the market so and one of the things i'm doing in the short term is maybe go i'll probably go to las vegas for a month or three not to go broke but just play poker and then i or i might go to worst the world i don't know i got some big decisions to make because this didn't work out so in that sense i'd let you know but I'm not going to tweet it or tell be so public about that. But anyway, if I'm around, I would. I never met you. Is my point. Um, so at some point down the road, it'd be cool if I can meet Todd. <laughs> yeah, no, we, you can. That's that's that'd be totally fine. And uh, you know, if you go to Vegas, I you got to be careful there. I know a lot of people got eaten by Vegas who just uh, kind of let oh, things I get out of control. I don't think I would go for that reason, other than in the short term, couple months. There's it's social. There's people there. There's, I don't really know if I like Vegas. Seattle's a place I like, unexpectedly, when I was there last year. But who goes there? That's like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny, right? Well, anyway, but, I, I'm going to get back to this whole thing, but I just wanted to uh, give you that little piece of advice there, and uh, you know, just just trust yeah, me. Yeah, I'm this. here. I heard it. Too. Just just trust. Just trust me. The the single takeaway here is anything that you think you see that no one else can, it isn't really happening. Yeah, I. Uh, you know, the other thing is, truthfully, too, I have a, a, a DM, like everybody, message box. So I'm communicating with you. But other than, like, yourself saying this, you're, I'm not, there's not really anybody reaching out and being like, yo, what are you doing? Like like that. So, but I know that my opinion won't be the same as other people's. And, and that's probably normal because I'm not that like everybody else either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, but, I, I, um, I hope everything uh, gets better there and... uh you know, so yeah, yeah if, if, it's not bad. It's just going to change here. So, question for you: Yeah, ben, when I when I met Ben in San Francisco, is that your son? In San Francisco, who do you meet in San Francisco? Well, I get in twenty well, twenty one. I guess I was in San Fran for like four or five days. And I, I haven't, I haven't there. been, I haven't been to San Francisco in years. It wasn't me or anyone. Oh no, his name's Tennis. No, my son, um, my son is well, twelve years old. He goes by. My son's twelve but years his old. Room, where yeah. at least as I knew him, was was that, and I, I was wondering because you had to know your son's name. I'm like, man, is this your son? But he didn't tell me he was that. No, no, I my my son is that. twelve, so he, he has Like you're saying, I'm imagining things. No, no, my son hasn't met you. He's only twelve, so I. No, I, I exa- okay, yeah, and this dude was like thirty. Like, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I could I could have a son that's and, thirty. And you know but, how it is. Everybody hides behind curtains. Well, I, you he's know what? Cool, isn't he? That someone did find a picture of a guy who looked just like me when I was in my late twenties. So he lives in that area. So <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like you met that uh, you person. Know, but in just four or five days, there. Well, my one read on San Francisco is people were obviously smart. <laughs> it's a pretty sophisticated city. Like 
So it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. People there are probably ahead of the curve in certain things, technology. Yeah, one. well, it's a, it's a pretty messed up city, too. Okay, well, uh, Garrett, I'm going to get back to everything here, so uh, I, I will talk to you yeah. later, and yeah, good luck with everything. And yeah, if, yeah, you, if you move to Vegas, let me know. I unexpectedly. Uh, thanks for taking it, and, I'll, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Take care, Joe. All right, bye. Bye. Okay, so towards the end of the Garrett call, I put on... Calwatt, and now I'm not sure if he is still here. Actually, I think he is. Yeah, I heard like a weird kind of <laughs> staticky sound. I was trying to connect on Trader Ruski. All right, let's try to add him now, too. What's happening, Tra- Oh, we got them both? Oh, good. Okay, so. What's happening, Calwatt? Hey, man, how are you? Good. How you doing? We got Trader Ruski. We got two co-hosts now. Very nice. Okay, so. And it's Microsoft, by the way, that fucks Skype up. It's, it's unbelievable. They, they did, <laughs> yes. They, 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 they ruined it for sure. I want to ask both of you, have either of you heard of Alan Mendelson? I've heard that name. but have no clue what it relates to. But I did just wake up. What about you, Cal? Um, I've, I've heard of the name, but I can't place him in terms of what he is or what he does okay well some sad news about alan mendelson then i'll explain who he is uh, alan mendelson has passed away at the age of 70 and he just passed away this week i found out about it yesterday and i knew him since 2013 i probably saw him on tv before that but didn't really remember But Alan Mendelson was a sort of consumer reporter on KCAL Channel 9 in Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s. And uh, he would do segments about deals to be found around Los Angeles. So he had a segment that was pretty long running on that station. And I probably saw it at some point, just didn't pay that much attention. But when I took notice of him was in 2013 when I was trying to Google about the Caesar Seven Stars program because I had become a Seven Stars member in the middle of 2012 and I was trying to learn some more about the program. And I there was some question I had at the time that I couldn't really find the answers to on Caesar's site because it's a piece of crap. So I was led to a forum where people were discussing the issue I had. Don't remember what it was, but... The forum I found was called AllenBestBuys.com. Not Allen's Best Buys, but just AllenBestBuys.com. AllenBestBuys.com was Alan Mendelssohn's website. And it was originally created to be a website for his show. Because what happened was after he was off of KCAL Channel 9, he decided to make his own infomercials. And his infomercials would air usually pretty early in the morning on weekends, and he would buy the time, of course, and he would go around L.A. and interview different business owners about what they offered. And obviously, at that point, the program was no longer about uh, helping the consumer. It was more just an ad. It it really was an infomercial, an ad, where he would find uh, what he'd call Best Buys, but it was really just whatever sponsors wanted to be featured on there. And he would go interview them or whatever they were selling. So 
the show was called Alan's Best Buys. I don't know why he then made the website Alan Best Buys without the S, but alanbestbuys.com. Don't bother to go to it because it's down. That was his website for a long time that was supporting the show, and it had links to the different sponsors and stuff like that. Well, I would not have had an interest in that website if it hadn't been for the fact that he also started a forum, which had been running since 2010. The forum, also on alanbestbuys.com, was a via bulletin forum, which is the same software I use on Poker Fraud Alert, and it was originally made to, again, support the show, but Alan also had a hobby, and that was gambling. Alan liked to go to Las Vegas, he liked to play craps, he liked to play video poker, those were his two favorite games. He was not an advantage player, he was not a plus EV gambler, but he liked gambling. So, on this forum, he made a section called Las Vegas. There were a number of other sub-forums on there, but Las Vegas was the one that, I don't know how it happened, but somehow various Casino Advantage players found their way over there and started posting. Now, the main forum where Casino Advantage players hang out is called Wizard of Vegas, and it's run by Michael Shackelford who's known as the Wizard of Odds. That's the main place people hang out. However, there's a lot of uh, strict rules over there. A lot of people get banned. So a number of Casino Advantage players have gotten either removed from Wizard of Vegas or they feel they can't say everything they want to say. And and I will say a lot of the Casino Advantage players, even the older ones, are kind of trollish and and like to get rude on forums. So that's also some of the reason they get banned. But they, they were looking for an alternate place to hang out and say the stuff they want to say that they couldn't say on Wizard of Vegas. And some of them found Alan Best Buys and started posting on there. So that really became the focus of the activity on Alan Best Buys. Most people were not posting about subjects related to his show. They were really all posting in the Las Vegas section, which kind of became the de facto main forum there. And Alan didn't mind that because, you know, he liked gambling. He liked discussing gambling. So he was fine with that, and he liked the fact that he had an active forum. So for three years, this went on, and it became more and more active, but it had some problems. See, Alan was uh, by no means a technical genius. He really uh, didn't know computers all that well. What he ended up doing was he bought space on a site that gives you a forum. They, they give you a vBulletin forum that they're running on their end that they install for you, and then you're using their server. Well, that was not good because, number one, it ran pretty slowly. And number two, it was inundated with spam bots. And the other problem was that the IP addresses have been blacklisted from that particular service because so many spam bots had been on there and were spamming out email through flaws in vBulletin that... uh, servers all over the world saw those IPs as ones that send out email spam. So the problem was that whenever people would sign up for allenbestbuys.com, they couldn't get their verification emails because so many sites had banned receiving emails from that IP. (laughs) So what did Alan do when he heard about this problem? He turned off email verification, so just by registering an account, you could post on (laughs) allenbestbuys.com. 
And, oh boy! And so you can imagine how bad the spam problem got. So it was terrible. And I so I was over there, and I liked parts of the site. I liked the Las Vegas forum there. I liked the people who were discussing the Seven Stars program. There were, there were some knowledgeable people there, and I enjoyed interacting with the Advantage players. And I saw potential in the thing, but it was a mess. So after being there for a little time and starting to like the place, I messaged Alan and I said, you know, I run a site called Poker Fraud Alert and I can move this forum over to my server and I don't have these problems that you have here. It'll run faster. I'll take care of the spam. I'll modify the software a bit to make it harder for the spammers. And, you know, I have various ways I can take care of this and the emails will work. So I can administrate this so how about we do this and you can still have full control of the forum. You can make all the rules. You can ban who you want. You can not ban who you want. You, yeah, as far as how the forums run, it'll be entirely up to you. I'll just be the technical admin and keep the spammers off. And then you know, in return, you, you can send me a small amount of money to pay for the server expenses since I run my site at a loss and maybe this will make me run at less of a loss. So he said, okay. So he paid me a very nominal amount every three months, and it really was very nominal. I, trust me, uh, I was still losing money on Poker Fraudler, even with the, what he was paying me. But I, I was doing this uh, because I enjoyed the Allen Best Buys forum. It definitely wasn't worth the money I was being paid, the, the work I was putting into it, but not even close. But, it, but I was happy to put it back into better shape. And I was the technical admin then for another, I don't know, two years or so. Well, what happened at that point? Then I got a call from Alan, and he told me that he can't stand all the drama on the forum. There's a lot of fighting there, a lot of trolling, a lot of uh, people that freak out because they don't like the way they're being treated there, or someone's doxing them, or someone's doing this, someone's doing that. There's a lot of stuff to deal with as the admin of the forum. And and he he said that uh, there's someone threatening to sue him, and he's just tired of all this. This is so much stress. He just wants me to take it all down. He needs to get this stress out of his life. And and keep in mind, he's 20 years older than me. So this was mid-2010s, I think 2015, maybe early 2016, something around there. And uh, so he was like early 60s at that point. I understood. You know, I understood why he didn't want this additional hassle in his life. It became more trouble than it was worth. So he said he wants me to just turn it all off, shut it down. The reason he had to ask me is because I was the one administrating it, and so I had to be the one to hit the off switch, basically. Well, I didn't like hearing that. I had enjoyed the forum. In fact, by that point, I had learned a whole lot about the Caesars 7 Star program myself, and now I was the knowledgeable guy giving out info to other people, and I had become quite active there, too, and I thought the forum even became better between the lack of spam and the better content. I I was liking the way it was going there. I didn't want to see it go down, and I I also put time and effort into it. Not like I do on Poker Fraud Alert, but I, I put some time and effort into this, and I didn't want to just take it down. So I said to Alan, well, how about I just take it over? And so he agreed. He agreed that I can take it over that will announce it, that it was sold to me, even though he didn't pay me any money. Basically, he just gave it to me. But it was announced as a sale. And the only condition he had was that I changed the domain 
and run it on a completely different domain. He didn't want it run on Allen Best Buys anymore because anything that happened there, he didn't want to be liable. So he didn't want it seen as being his forum, even if it was something that I was said to own. So I said, that's fine. So I had to quickly come up with a domain name. I'm like, okay, what, what can I call this thing? What can I call the new Allen Best Buys? I go, okay, Vegas something with casinos. Uh, oh, let's see, Vegas Casino Talk. Is that taken? And no, it wasn't. So Vegas Casino Talk was born. So what I did was I bought the domain VegasCasinoTalk.com. I quickly changed the branding on the site, which was very quick because there wasn't much branding. And I changed the domain info on the site. And uh, there wasn't that much work to do because it was already running on my server. And then I quickly sent out a mass email to every single registered user on there that we have changed over from com to Vegas Casino Talk, and it's under new ownership, and inviting people to come back if they haven't been here for a while. Well, yeah, that worked. I became the new owner. Alan still posted, but he was now a regular user. The problem I had was that Alan never was into the whole advantage play thing. So not only wasn't he an advantage player, but he didn't really believe in advantage play. He, th- he thought that advantage players were liars, that they were pretending to win when they weren't, that they're just making a lot of outlandish claims to seem cool on the internet. So he frequently would post that advantage players were basically full of shit, and of course that pissed them off and they would fight with him. So there'd be a lot of fighting. This included when he ran the forum himself. So now, to his credit, he didn't ban anyone for this. He didn't ban people for insulting him. But there were a lot of people insulting him on his own forum, and he'd fight back with them. And now he wasn't the one running it. And I was like, okay, how do I handle this? Like, I want them to treat him with respect because this was originally his, and he just handed it to me. I didn't even pay pay anything for it, but. Uh, at the same time, if he's going to make provocative posts, I, I can't just say nobody has a right to come back at him. Especially the tone of that forum had pretty much been fairly free speech the whole time under under his leadership there. So I, I was trying to convince the people there, you know, you, you got to treat Alan with at least some respect here. He's the original founder. And, you know, some people I had to keep reminding. Sometimes I had to delete posts. Sometimes I had to threaten to ban people. But uh, fortunately, I was kind of always an outsider to that group and kind of in a good way to where like I was, they knew I was a professional gambler. They they had respect for me there, but they, I also wasn't close enough to all of them. I wasn't really a wizard of Vegas poster, so they didn't, I wasn't part of the drama. So they kind of respected what I had to say. So I, I'll give the users that, that I, people really weren't starting up with me over there and they were mostly respectful of my requests. Uh, they, they were more into bashing Alan because of his doubt of the advantage player community. But anyway, Alan would participate there on and off for this reason. Sometimes he'd get frustrated the way he was treated there and leave, and then uh, then he'd come back, and he'd leave and come back. But he always felt like, I think this was kind of a piece of him, because the thing had been running since 2010, and I, I kept just about all the content. I, I rearranged a little, like, where it was on the subforums, but pretty much every post that was made there since it opened is still there on Vegas Casino Talk. You know, this was his baby. This is something he created and eventually handed off because he found it too stressful, but he still liked it. He still kept coming back. Even when he'd leave, he'd eventually come back. And 
this was a pattern throughout the final years of his life where he would be gone for some time and then come back and then be gone and come back. But it, it was always kind of comforting to know that even when Alan would leave, that he, we'd eventually see him again. And even though I didn't agree with everything he posted and, uh, you know, it, it's, sometimes we had our disagreements on things. He was one of these people that I couldn't ever bring myself to dislike. Even when we had disagreements and arguments about things, like I could never bring myself to ever dislike him. I, I, and I always had a certain respect for him, too. And he had an interesting life. In, uh, in the 60s, he was working uh, in some news jobs in New York. And, of course, he was a young guy then in the 60s. He was uh, in his late teens. And, or actually, early te- he was actually not even 18 yet in the 60s, now that I think about it. He was... Uh, I think he started working in news, I think, even before he got out of high school. He talked about like working in like 68, 69, and now that I think of it, he wasn't even 18 then. But really, his whole life, he was in some form of uh, news or broadcasting. And he, he interviewed a lot of interesting people that back then. He worked behind the scenes for Walter Cronkite. Uh, they did a little tribute to him on KCAL 9, which I'll play you guys. Shows you after all these years that he was still notable enough to them that they did this tribute. Listen to this. We want to remember a longtime member of our KCAL 9 family. Alan Mendelssohn has passed away. Known as the Money Man, his Best Buy segment was a staple here throughout the 90s. He had tips on where to get good deals on everything from electronics to clothes. Alan worked here for many years. He passed away Wednesday at his home in Las Vegas. He leaves behind a son and daughter. He was 70 years old. That was a little uh, 30 second segment they did. If you want to hear what he sounded like on his Best Buy show, I don't have any clips of him from KCAL 9 for whatever reason. They're not on YouTube, but here's one of his segments on Best Buys. I'll play a little bit of it when he was interviewing some woman with a clothing store. Great Labels is the designer resale fashion boutique in Santa Monica. Meet Andrea Waters of Great Labels. We sell people's personal wardrobes on consignment. And what treasures you can find here. Get the top designers, either slightly worn or even brand new with the original store tags still attached. Here at the Bargain Rack, prices are 75% off the Great Labels prices, but these prices are actually up to 95% off the original retail prices. Here's a Nicole Miller dress. It still has the tags on it. It retailed for $3.95. Okay, so you get the picture. And most of the segments were like this to different businesses. And he basically parlayed people's knowledge of him in LA News to spin it off to this, to this infomercial. People go, oh, I remember this guy who gave you tips on good consumer deals okay well you know i'll uh check out this store and that's how he sold it to these retailers that would be featured on his show and this is what he did for a living for the last i don't know 20 years or so and uh at the very end he shut down the best buys thing and uh, he was doing some sort of promotion for a tax relief firm and if you go to his twitter you can see this. In fact, his last tweet was on October 31st, and he actually was uh, promoting an article that he had written about tax relief that was on this company's website. So if you were to go to uh, Alan Best Buys TV, Alan Best Buys TV, you will 
see that his last tweet was on, on October 31st. There was a tweet uh, 12 hours ago, but that was uh, obviously tweeted by someone in his family. It said, in loving memory of Alan Mendelssohn, 4752 to 11922. What's interesting is because he was born in uh, early 1952, he was just about exactly 20 years older than me, so it was always easy for me to know his age because of that very round difference we had in our ages. I didn't think he would be passing away this soon, though. You know, 70 is a fairly young age. It's not super young, but it's younger than average. He did have some health problems. He had a kidney transplant uh, some years ago. It wasn't super recent, maybe 10 years ago or more. But anyone who had a kidney transplant is not going to be in the pinnacle of health. So I don't know if his death was related to that. But he did tweet as recently as October 31st promoting that tax relief info site and he wrote an article for them on the 29th of October so I have to imagine he was fairly healthy or maybe completely healthy until Halloween and then something must have happened because we don't see another tweet of him after from him until uh, this tweet that was done from his account after he passed away so I'm guessing either on the 31st of October or on November 1st he had some major health issue occur went to the hospital and and then passed away this week. So it doesn't look like a sudden death, but it looks like a sudden downturn in health and then a death approximately two weeks later. So, you know, that's sad. This was someone who uh, I wasn't really close with. Uh, I was closer to him around the time when when I was administrating the site and he was running it, and also after the the spinoff. After that, we weren't as close anymore. As I said, I never disliked the guy. He was an interesting character for sure, and someone who really loved gambling and the gambling community. And it's weird. It's it's one of these people you kind of expect to just show up and still be there, and it's weird to think about, no, he's never going to make another post. We're never going to hear from him again. And uh, it's it's kind of sad, especially because I didn't think this was coming anytime soon. You know, he's 20 years older than me, and he had a kidney transplant, so... Did I think he was going to die before me? Yes. Did I think he'd die way before me? Yes. But did I think he's going to die in 2022? No. So that's pretty sad. And uh, in fact, there's a picture of the two of us. You can find it on uh, Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, one of the members who's on both Poker Fraud Alert and Vegas Casino Talk posted a thread about Alan Mendelssohn passing away. And you can see there I posted a picture of me and him that was taken in October 2014. And in fact, Alan met Benjamin and met Benjamin's mom. We we met at uh, Nobu. We were both in Vegas at the same time. So I told him that uh, I'll come over and say hello. And we did. So yeah, it's too bad. Uh, rest in peace, Alan Mendelssohn. And uh, Vegas Casino Talk is really the continuation of the forum he started in 2010 with the same content still there. So it's going to continue living on long after Alan has left. That's something that will continue there. And someone announced his passing on there. And the first few messages were nice, but you know, there's so many trolls on that site. Some people actually were uh, writing some nasty messages. And I, I, I removed that. I said, come on, guys. You know, the, the guy just passed away. He's the original founder here. you got to show some respect. You can't troll in this thread here. There's a certain amount of trolling I allow on both sides. But, you know, when the original founder passes away, you you can't troll there. And 
yeah, there's people on the site that didn't like him, but then just keep your mouth shut. You know, if he, if he had been a scammer or a bad guy, then it's a different story. But this is just someone who they fought with online about advantage play matters. Like, that's not a good enough reason to write negative things about them after they die. But there were some nice messages up there, too. And Alan's son, who originally helped him start the forum in the first place, I think his son was the one who kind of got it all going. His son showed up and thanked people for posting the nice messages that were there. I, th- I think by the time his son showed up, I had deleted the bad ones. So that's good. But that, it was nice that his son saw that and appreciated that uh, the good message about his father. And really, yeah, I wouldn't have this Vegas Casino Talk site if it were not for Alan. It was really his site that he handed off to me. So you, you can go check out the site again. If I've mentioned it before, VegasCasinoTalk.com. And it's got a Casino Advantage player feel to it that's that's the general topic there rather than poker fraud alert which is uh more about poker there's very little poker talk over there but if you have interest in casino stuff then you may want to take a look so that was sad to find out about all right so moving on to hopefully a less depressing topic cal White, i'll ask you this first what do you think of mobile versions of companies' websites, like they make a mobile version of uh, whatever you're going to otherwise do on the website. Uh, Do you tend to like that or not like it? It's a very antiquated way of doing things. Um, Typically, I'd be surprised if there are many that are still doing it this way. Um, But that usually comes out of a, a very old site that they have done. Instead of doing a complete redesign, I mean, typically what people do with websites these days is they do mobile-first designs, and they make a responsive design that, that works at any size. Yes, I, I guess that's true. And what do you think of an app version instead of doing the mobile version where there's a website and then an app that is for the same service? Uh, do you like using those, or do you prefer to use the website version? Um, I think it depends. It depends on whether the app actually adds value. If the app is essentially just a wrapper for what's already on the website, it actually will be rejected from Apple's store anyway. Uh, probably won't make it into the Google store without problems, but I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that I, I think the utility of apps for me is that they're quick to get to, they work online or, or offline, and also there aren't a huge proliferation of them. So if it's something that I'm using a lot, then I don't mind having an app for it. But if it's something I use only rarely, I would much rather just use the website to do whatever it is, you know? Okay, Trader Ruski, how do you feel about apps and mobile versions of uh, websites? I agree with everything Calwatch said. Okay. And I think for some of them, yeah, like Wells Fargo, they have a decent app. Um, some of those apps that are just kind of more of just like a table of content for the website are kind of a fail. Yeah, it really just depends what you're using it for. Okay, well, I'm going to give you a, a less positive answer. I hate them. I I hate almost all of them. I find myself all always... <laughs> almost all of these mobile versions and app versions of websites, I almost always wish I could be on the website. And, and it's really infuriating when I try to go to the website and then it forces me to some crappy mobile version, so I can't get to the website unless I'm actually near a computer. 
It, it drives me up the wall. I, I very rarely say, oh, wow, this is so much easier and nicer to use than the website. It, I rarely find that. I find that they remove features that make it less user-friendly. They're full of bugs, even often the apps that are for major companies, which is pretty shocking. You think they'd have the money into making a decent app. And well, I'm I, I not did, shocked, man. I've got Bank of America, and their website is an absolute piece of garbage. Yeah, it, it, it's very surprising, <laughs> but... I I but go typically the way you do it though Druff is you, the the right way to do it is you do mobile first design and then you do what's called progressive enhancement which is if whatever the device the website is running on has additional capabilities one of which is additional screen size then you en- enhance it for that yes it, the these totally separate mobile sites are almost always garbage that are half-heartedly done and and thrown in there Correct. That's exactly what I seem to find. But yeah. even the apps, uh, they, they tend to be terrible. And so many times someone will say, oh, such and such mistake happened where I ordered something and the wrong thing came or they sent it to the wrong address and it somehow reset to an original address that I don't use anymore, blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, did you use the app version? Yes. Well, don't use the website. I, I, I have this conversation with people all the time. Because these things always suck. They're full of bugs. They're not user-friendly. It's very easy to make mistakes because partially the screen is small and they cram too much in one space. I I mean, the problems go on and on and on and on. I I just so much like the desktop version of sites. And in fact, there used to be a tweak you could get on the iPhone if you had a jailbroken iPhone called UA Faker, which would trick websites into thinking that you are on a PC and wouldn't yeah, give you, you the mobile version. you can still do that. You can still change the user agent if you want to. Uh, I've tried. I can't do it. You, you can show me right, if you've well, found we a way. Yeah, we can talk offline. Yeah, we can talk, I guess. I, I think that it... I used to be able I to. I can't in anymore. Terms, in terms of apps, though, I mean, you think about it. The difference between an app and a website um, is that an app is running native, right? So it's ostensibly faster. An app should be able to work offline. A lot of them these days are not well done, so they don't. But they should be able to work offline, whether you're connected to the internet or not. Um, and in theory, they should offer a nicer experience. I, I agree with you at various. I have some apps that I use for just ordering stuff that are actually fantastic. Like, they work really, really well. And I have some that are just such pieces of garbage, like you're saying. I would rather just, like, call them or, or do something <laughs> else, you know? I find it very rare that I, I'm happy I'm using the app version. I've, at best, I'll find the app version like passable or I go, okay, well, this isn't terrible. But okay, let me get to why I'm bringing this up. Yeah, do it. I, I was on a sports betting site while I was playing poker, live poker, okay? And I was playing overnight, and I go, well, crap, uh, college football is going to be starting shortly, and I'm not going to be home to place these bets, so... I was uh, doing the best research I could on the phone, and I came up with some picks, and I was placing these bets. But uh, this is a a newer site I've joined. Not new in that it's uh, brand new, but new to me. And their mobile interface is horrendous. This is not an app. It's a mobile version, and it's horrendous. And one of the big problems on this site is that it's too easy to accidentally click the max bet link when you're trying to enter your bets. So that's what I did. I accidentally clicked the max bet link, which accidentally made me bet five times what I was looking to bet on that game. 
five times is not a tremendous multiplier. It's not like I bet 50 times or 500 times what I normally bet. And of course, I'm limited by the balance I have on the site, so I couldn't bet 500 times what I normally bet. But I'm very big on betting the same thing on every game because I don't believe in this units bullshit. I I think that's for degenerates. I think it's for degenerates to say, well, I really like this pick, so I'm going to bet more on this. Now, yes, there's picks I like more than others, but there are times I love a pick and it, it loses. And there's times I, I make a marginal pick and then it, it easily wins. Uh, but, so what I found in general is that if you really want consistency as a sports handicapper, for the most part, you need to keep your bets fairly uniform. You, you can make bigger bets every so often if you think that you really like something to win. But if you do it too much, you're going to screw yourself because it's going to introduce too much variance and it, it's going to hide your positive EV record, or it easily could, even if you are a positive EV sports better. It's, be, it's better to stick with consistency, pick amount that you are comfortable betting, and then bet that every time and not get caught up in, oh, I, I really love this one or I somewhat like this one. So there really shouldn't be a whole lot of distance between a pick that you're reluctantly making and a pick that you really like as far as the real quality of the pick. If you don't like it that much, you just shouldn't bet it. And if you love it, there's only so much you can love it in most cases. And I'm not talking about a situation where you're getting incredible value because of some mistake on the book's end. I'm talking about what the line is supposed to be and just how much you think it's a correct pick. So anyway, I didn't love the fact that I bet five times because as far as my real-life record is concerned, not the record I keep on the website. Because I, I post all these picks on Poker Fraud Alert and Vegas Casino Talk, so everybody can see it. I, I post them before the game, so you can see I'm not pulling shenanigans. But while it wouldn't affect my posted record, it, it's going to affect my real-life record for how many Jew dollars are in my wallet, and I was annoyed that this one is going to be five times as impactful as the other picks I make when I didn't think it was a five times better pick. It was just a regular pick. So I still like the pick. I didn't pick the wrong game. I didn't pick the wrong side. But I bet five times as much, which I didn't really want to. So I was looking at first to see if maybe I can undo this and get in contact with the site and get them to undo it. But then I noticed that this game is starting in like 10 minutes and there's no way to do that. So I had to just live with it. Now, I've made mistakes before, not on this site. I'm relatively new to it. But I've made sports betting mistakes before. And every time I've made a mistake, like double betting something or accidentally betting the wrong side and not realizing it until uh, the game gets going. It seems like every time I make a mistake like that, I get screwed. It seems like every time I make a mistake, it ends up hurting me. So I didn't have the best record luck-wise with benefiting from mistakes rather than having them hurt me. So I wasn't that optimistic. But the game I bet on that uh, I accidentally five times bet, thanks to the terrible mobile interface was an overpick in college football. And it was actually a fairly high total of uh, 61 and a half. So it was teams expected to score a lot of points. But the problem with those picks is that really a lot has to go right. Uh, you can't just get off to a, a strong start and then expect to cruise the rest of the way. This, this really has to have some pretty consistent scoring to score more than uh, 61 and a half points. So I'm not criticizing the pick. I'm saying that it was probably going to be a sweat the whole way. It's rare with a over 61 and a half in college football that you at the halftime you can say, okay, I've got this one. Anyway, this was Indiana at Ohio State. 
And it was an interesting game because even though it was nationally televised, it was on Fox Channel 11 in, in L.A. It was, it was a, uh, a nationally televised Fox game. Ohio State, which I think is the number two ranked team, that was the reason it was televised, was playing a trash team in Indiana. Indiana was actually a 40-and-a-half-point dog in the game. How often do you see that, a 40-and-a-half-point dog in a football game? But that's what they were. That's kind of weird. They have a 40-and-a-half-point dog. And the problem there was that Ohio State really has to do most of the scoring. And watching the game, it was very clear the tremendous difference in skill. And every time Indiana got the ball, they just were basically going for and out. They, they were, weren't even getting first downs. So somehow they got a touchdown in the first quarter, but uh, the rest of the time it was a disaster. Every time they got the ball, I couldn't wait for Ohio State to get the ball back and hopefully score. Now, in the first quarter, things looked very nice. In the first quarter, Ohio State had three touchdowns and Ohio- Indiana got their one touchdown, so it was 28 points after the first quarter. I needed 62 to win. So that's great. That's on a great pace. I thought, all right, well, maybe they can get another good quarter there, or at least a decent quarter, and then I'll be pretty assured to win here. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. In the second quarter, they didn't do very much, and uh, it became a sweat going into halftime. They only scored uh, seven points between them. It was just seven points for Ohio State, and that was it. Also, there were some injuries during the game, including one major one on Ohio State's side. So I go, oh, crap, that's going to really bring things down. And unfortunately, the thinking from a lot of people at halftime was that Ohio State's probably just going to cruise the rest of the way. They're probably not going to want to risk further injuries. They're not going to knock themselves out when they're playing a trash team, and they've already got a big lead. So someone on the site actually advised me, hey, you should bet back the other side because I I think this isn't going to get to 61.5. I think it's going to continue with the slow scoring at this point. Well, I got a few lucky things happen. I had... Indiana fail on one of their punts where they tried to punt and it was blocked and Ohio State got the ball right back and easily scored a touchdown. I had another one where Ohio State was able to do a, a very, very long run almost all the way across the field for another touchdown. And the the run was comical. It was almost like what you'd see on TV where the guy's just kind of like twisting and turning with all these defenders around him and somehow they just can't tackle him. It, you'd never see this in the NFL or even with with good college teams playing each other. But with Indiana, they they were so bad at tackling this one guy, he was just able to pivot around them. And just no one could get him down, and he he ran all the way for a touchdown. So that was another good one for me. And uh, anyway, even though I was a little bit nervous, because the third quarter didn't have very robust scoring either, and towards the end of the third, they they got some, and then at the end of the fourth, uh, at the beginning of the fourth, Ohio State uh, scored a touchdown, and then the deciding factor, believe it or not, was Indiana in that Ohio State made a boneheaded mistake where uh, for the second time in the game, the player catching the Indiana punt dropped it. The first time Ohio barely got it back, the second time they didn't get it back. So Indiana now had the ball on like the 22-yard line. So they just had to push across 22 yards to get the damn touchdown. And there was no way they were going to kick a field goal when they were down a million points. So they still had seven. And all I needed was this other touchdown now to get... I just needed someone to get a touchdown for me to have a minimum of 62 points. 
I think it was 49-7 at this point. So I was thinking, you know, Indiana's so crappy, I could picture they won't even be able to get this 22 yards. But amazingly, they did and made the touchdown, and that was it. So with 12 minutes to spare, it covered. And it ended up with 70 points, but I, I turned it off after I saw the 60-second point score. So it was a happy ending. The accidental five times bet actually won for me. But I'm still pissed off with that mobile interface. Now I'm super paranoid using it. I'm so worried this is going to happen again. And I won't be so lucky to win it this time. The funny thing is I had another over. And that other over started off even better and ended up losing. So that's the problem with these like high total overs. Is you can never be too secure it's going to win. But it all comes down to my hatred of mobile versions. And this is definitely one of them. And I, I just wish I could use the desktop version on my phone. I don't care if I have to zoom in or whatever to use it. it, it it's, I'd much rather do that than have these mistakes occur. Well, I think you hate poorly done mobile versions, which is fair. That's <laughs> like most of you them. Know? Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, like... I can't even use uh, Poker Fraud Alert well on my phone because it's really, you have to like pinch and zoom and out and in and back and forth, you know? You know, that's somewhat true, but I have no problem with it. I See, I like it that way. I, I like being able to, I actually disabled the mobile version. There's actually a separate mobile version that's programmed into, uh, <laughs> oh, no, it, it, there's a separate mobile version that's programmed into vBulletin and I tried it yeah. and I thought it sucked. And and I said no, I, I'm not going to have it here. I'm going to make people pinch and zoom. I'm going to have a full. Well, feature. Actually, I'm currently banned anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, that's right. I was going to work on that. Yeah. Okay. No, no, you don't need to. It's okay. No, no, no. I will. It was, see, this is the problem. And this is important. To anyone who has the same issue, um, Apple has a service called iCloud Private Relay, and it's kind of a form of a proxy to hide your IP. Yep. And I banned it because I don't like people using that because then they can cause problems on the site and I can't see who's doing it. So I banned iCloud Private Relay. And unfortunately, there's no easy way to ban it. I won't get into the technical discussion as to why, but I had to kind of take my best guesses at who was using it and who wasn't. Not who specifically, but... Looking at your IP address and some other factors, the system takes the best guess of whether you're using it or not. And I'm getting some false positives on it. So I've been working on it to not get as many false positives. Uh, Calwatt, you said you were actually using it, though, right? Well, I mean, I I tried to use it. There was one, I can't remember what it was, but uh, honestly, the mobile, using it, your, the site on a mobile device is painful enough that I probably won't do it anyway. So don't don't exhaust a whole lot of effort in getting the. Uh, okay. Well, what I can do for certain working. users, I, I can turn it off to where no matter what IP you're using, it'll let you through. Yeah. So I I was I haven't written that in yet, but I can. So anybody so else don't, who's, don't bother. Well, anyone else who's <laughs> listening who's having that issue with the iCloud private relay, let me know, and I will. Uh, fix it for you especially if you're if you're not using iCloud private relay and it's identifying you as such please let me know that as well but yeah i did turn off the mobile version though because i hated it and it didn't have the features i wanted so i just said you know what i'm just gonna shut it off all right well let's move on here 
I just want to tell you my little uh, sports betting story. It amazingly had a happy ending. But you know what? I, I'm going to tell you guys again. You should really look at my NFL picks. If you guys like uh, betting the NFL, there's two people on this show who've been uh, calling the NFL correctly this season. And the one who is not in that category, as far as I know, is Calwatt. But uh, Trader Ruski, is, is, are you still leading there in your uh, NFL contest? And yesterday I fucked up. I ended up uh, swapping at the very last minute Houston from Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota Houston from Minnesota. Oh. So that was a fail. But I but I did go three and two yesterday. I've got Washington tonight and still do not have a losing or even time week. So up by five games. I That's think. very good. So, yeah. And I have a uh, 35-12-1 and one record in the NFL. And honestly... Uh, I, the, the Arizona Rams under I had got screwed today, so that should have won too, but it didn't. So it went four and two instead of five and one, but still thirty-five, twelve and one in this NFL season. That's a pretty strong record, especially some of them are underdog bets too. They were money lines, so it's even better than it sounds. So great NFL season for me so far, uh, with one unit bet every game. I'm still up. 24.42 units, even including the house juice, which I include in the units. So that's uh, a lot to be up after 48 picks. There's no way I can maintain this pace, by the way, but uh, still, it's been almost 50 picks, and I, much like Trader Ruski, I haven't really had a bad week. I had, I think, one week where I slightly lost, and another one where I kind of broke even. The rest of them are winning. So good NFL handicapping from both of us so far. And you can take a look on the Flying Stupidity Wagering thread on Poker Fraud Alert if you want to see that, or you can look on the sports betting section of Vegas Casino Talk if you want to find an easier way to read it because it's much less uh, cluttered. So, Okay, let's move on here. Sean Deeb did something interesting this past week. Did any of you guys play the Powerball when it got to $2 billion? Did not. I'm sure Calwatt did it because he's never bought a lottery ticket. But yep. I, I definitely uh, threw some money away. Okay. Well, see, when it gets really high, and I mean really high, like something that's a record or close to a record, then I will usually buy a single ticket, and I'll bring Benjamin to go do it. And then he'll pick the numbers. Obviously, he can't actually purchase it since he's not 18. Then I'll purchase it. Then uh, we'll watch the results, which, of course, is just for fun. I, I know I'm not going to hit the 1 in 224 million chance to hit it, but, you know, it's worth the $2 to have fun with it there. And it was funny. I, I actually lied to Benjamin about what we were doing. I He, he was up. This is on a weekend, but he was up, and uh, this is for the $1.5 billion, the one before that uh, – I actually didn't get there in time for the $1.9 billion that ended up $2 billion. But the one before it that nobody hit, it was like 10.30 at night, the night before they were going to draw. And I told him we're going to go somewhere as a surprise. And he kept asking what it was. So I told him that we're secretly going to be taking a trip to Las Vegas, but we can't tell his mom because she's going to stop us. <laughs> And I told him, we have to be quiet, we can't let her hear it, and I won't tell her till we're all, all the way there and she can't make me turn around. 
And he wasn't sure what to think. He was skeptical, saying, why aren't you bringing a suitcase? And, uh, you know, he, he was thinking this is probably a lie, but he wasn't 100% sure. And then I said, well, let's let's stop at 7-Eleven and get some snacks for the ride here. And then as soon as we walked in, I showed him what we were really doing. So he picked the numbers. And uh, obviously we lost. Everybody lost that one. And the $1.9 billion one, I forgot what day it was. And so I didn't uh, get there in time. I rushed down there and it turned out I was too late. But Sean Deeb, he had a much bigger chance to win it than I did. Because he organized a bunch of poker players together to buy 45,000 Powerball tickets. That's... A lot of tickets. I really haven't heard of a group that bought more tickets than that. Not just for this, but for any. I'm not saying it's a record, but I, I personally haven't heard of a group buying more than 45,000 tickets. But uh, that's what they did. They collected $90,000 from the poker community, some of which came from Sean Deeb and his wife, but most of it came from other people. And the idea was to buy as many tickets as possible to bring the odds of winning down to something reasonable. Now, of course, this has to be split up proportionately to how many tickets each person bought. I believe he had a minimum purchase requirement of $500. So you can't say, okay, well, you know, put me up for $2, Sean. It's, it's got to be 500 or less, but, uh, or 500 or more, I mean. But he got a lot of people to participate enough to where he got $90,000 worth of tickets. He posted on November 7th, pool is closed, 90K total being spent, 45K tickets, time for win, the 800-player pool main event. We'll post the finalized list. Make sure you're on there. If you sent, we we doubled-checked, but could be a mistake. That's all one sentence, by the way. I, I made it sound more clear than it actually is reading it. If you read it the way it's written, it's pool is closed, 90K total being spent, 45 tickets, time for win the 800-player pool main event. We'll post the finalized list. Make sure you're on there. If we sent, we double-checked, but it could be a mistake. Just one run-on sentence. He's, he's one of the worst writers in history. In fact, there's even a gimmick account called Coherent Sean Deeb that translates whatever he writes. Josh Arie was also involved in organizing this. Sean Deeb was mostly doing it, but Josh Arie was somewhat involved in the effort, and he does not write poorly. Josh Arie writes well. In fact, he owns Pocket Fives. He wrote, Attention lotto junkies, we're printing 12K worth of tickets per hour. Assuming the machine doesn't break, we will finish before the 10 p.m. deadline. Then Sean Deeb's wife, Ashley Deeb, posted a list of all the people who bought these tickets, how much they spent, so everybody could publicly see who purchased tickets, and it ended up totaling exactly $90,000. I saw on the list was Bob Guadio for 500 Now, does that name ring a bell at all to either of you, Bob Guadio? Nope. What about you, Trader Ruski? Nope. Okay. Well, it rang a bell to me. Bob Guadio is 80 years old and best known for being a member of the Four Seasons, starting at the age of 17. And he wrote a lot of songs for them. He wrote Cherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Dawn, Ronnie, Ragdoll, Save It For Me, Big Man in Town, 
Bye Bye Baby, Girl Come Running, Begging, Who Loves You, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, and December 1963, Oh What a Night. I'm sure you've heard some of those songs. So he wrote all those. And he was part of the Four Seasons since he was 17. And I was like, wow, that's, that's funny. They got uh, Bob Gladio, 80 years old, <laughs> buying into Sean Deeb's lottery pool. Who would have guessed that? However, that was not him. There is a Robert Guadio, who's a poker player. I don't know if he's related to him, but uh, I'm sure it's that guy and not the singer. It would have been a lot cooler if it was the 80-year-old Four Seasons singer, but I doubt it was. Probably the poker-playing Robert Guadio. And I saw a picture of that guy. He's not the same person. Could be his son, though. The guy kind of looks like middle-aged. So it could have been, you know, if Bob Guadio had a son... Oh, no, but he did. I think he had three daughters. I think I looked that up. I, I'm pretty sure it's not his son. Anyway, the odds of winning a Powerball ticket with one is uh, one in 292.2 million. But with 45,000 tickets, provided that none of them accidentally duplicate one another, which wouldn't happen very often, your odds are one in 6,493. So... The odds of Sean Deeb's group winning the Powerball was it was better than one in sixty five hundred, as was pointed out by someone on Twitter. That's about your same odds of winning the WSOP main event if you enter it and have about average skill compared to the field. It's also roughly equivalent to sitting down at a poker table and getting dealt pocket aces on the first hand and then a pocket pair of sevens or higher on the second hand. I don't just mean of any two hands. I mean, on the first two hands, when you sit down, getting aces on the first hand and then sevens or better on the second hand. That happens about once every 6,500 times. So it's about those odds. So it's something that's not common, but it's not, like, shockingly unlikely. As you might guess, that did not come through. They did not win. There was some delay in processing all the tickets, so they had to not announce the Powerball numbers until this was all done. So finally, the next day, they announced that the winner was in Altadena, California. When I heard it was Altadena, which is near Pasadena in the L.A. area, I knew it was unlikely that it was Deeb's group because they're in Vegas, so the place they would go to get the Powerball tickets, you can't do it in Nevada, but you can go to the state line 40 miles away and do it there. So I don't know if they did it there or if they did it maybe at the Arizona border, but somewhere they didn't go, which was very far. There's no way they would have driven all the way to Altadena just to get Powerball tickets. So I knew once I heard Altadena, they didn't win. But there are smaller prizes, including one that's like a million dollars. So it didn't mean that they for sure didn't profit, but there was a pretty high chance they didn't profit. When it was all said and done, the 90K worth of tickets ended up being worth 8,000-something. So they got less than a 10% return, but they were, you know, they're going for the big hit and not trying to make money otherwise. Otherwise, you know, it's pretty unlikely with 90,000 tickets it's going to result in something, or 45,000 tickets it's going to result in more than 90,000 in payments if you don't hit the big one or hit the million. So what he was offering at that point 
was that since it's a pain in the ass to make these small payments to people because the people who bought in for 500 were going to get like 40 something dollars back and he's saying you know do you guys really want 40 something dollars back or maybe we should do another one where we just roll it into the next one so what he wrote was uh he's offering that he's going to roll it for anyone who wants that if you want your payout of the less than 10% that it paid he'll send it to you but if you are willing to roll it, then they'll try again with presumably another Powerball or something else, and this will prevent the hassle of him having to send these micropayments to people. A number of people were interested in that. However, his tax attorney, Russ Fox, who is somewhat known around Vegas, said, uh-uh, that's not a good idea, and told him for legal purposes that he should not roll it and just pay people out. And I'm not sure of the exact legalities of that, but Russ Fox did not approve and told Sean, you might get yourself in hot water here, so just pay people and be done with it. So Sean had to announce that, sorry, uh, Russ Fox told me that I can't do it, so I'm not doing it, and I have to pay you guys. So do you feel bad for Sean that he has to send out all of these payments now? Well, don't feel too bad, because here was his first tweet about the whole lotto pool on November 6th. This is, of course, before they lost. All right, seems to be enough interest in Powerball pool. Respond in comments how you want to pay, and I'll DM you where where to send. I can accept Cash App, Zelle, Venmo, PayPal. Remember, 525 minimum buy-in, 5% any amount for admin fee for wife doing the work. Ah, so that was the little catch there, that with 90,000 tickets that 5% of that value was going to Ashley Deep. Now, it is a lot of work, I will say that, because we're talking about 45,000 tickets. And how do you go through 45,000 tickets? I believe they had to do it manually. Maybe there was a way to not do it manually, but I believe they probably had to do it manually. Now, how is that possible? How could you possibly go through 45,000 tickets and see what won? Well, to win in this lotto, you have to hit the Powerball number before you can win anything. So if you haven't hit the Powerball number, which is a separate number, as I explained, then you might as well throw the ticket away. So I believe what she probably just did was scanned down the tickets with her eyes, and when she saw a 10 in the Powerball column, then she would mark it. And if she didn't, she could ignore the rest. And then from there, she could determine which of these hit enough... uh, Actually, they all win something with a Powerball number, so... Yeah. Right, but you can win something without hitting the Powerball. Oh, you can? Okay, then that's... Okay, I didn't think you could. I'm pretty sure, yeah, unless this is different than most of them. But yeah, sometimes you can hit three without the Powerball, that pays less than if you hit two with the Powerball, so... Oh, okay, so maybe it's harder. Unless there's some automated way to do it. I just didn't think there was, so... Anyway... and, and, I mean, they have the thing you can go into and scan it at the store, but I'd imagine by now they have one of your favorite uh, iPhone apps, but I'm not sure. Oh. Yeah, maybe she's not doing it manually, but... Yeah, she's getting 5%. Did she make them aware? Was, was the 5% known before it all happened? Yes, that's, that's when he uh, posted at the very beginning that since there's enough interest... Uh, 525 minimum buy-in. Oh, I see. She's taking the 5% off the top. I see. So she's not, it's not off the prize. It's a 
five percent off the top. So he's saying a five twenty five minimum buy in, five percent she takes off the top, that's why it becomes five hundred. So that's she's not taking five percent of the prize. So if they won the two billion, she's not getting five percent of that. But uh I guess she was getting the flat five percent no matter how they do. So it's five percent of ninety K, which is like four thousand something. So that that's not chump change, but it, 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 there is a lot of work with this whole thing. I don't think they were doing it really to make money. I think the attitude his wife probably took was, why should these degenerates get free work from me? Like, wh- why do they get to buy in and I have to do all the work? They just send money and, and hope and, and I've got to do all the processing. Screw that. So it was probably... Something they came up with they thought was fair. So whatever, as long as you know, going in, which you do, then that's fine. If you think it's too high, you don't have to buy in. Druff, would you go through 45,000 lotto tickets for $4,500? No, not, not unless there's a fast way to do it. If I, had I wouldn't to either. Do, do it manually, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I saw some people saying that like she's got a lot of work and you have to make all these micropayments, like it's a pain in the ass, so... Uh, yeah, I I wouldn't want that. And I've also thought about would I ever want to join this type of pool? And no, I didn't join this, and there's no way I would have put $500 into the lottery. It is true they got the odds way down. I mean, to $224 million to 6500 is a tremendous reduction, and it starts to get in more realistic territory. But still, like 1 in 6500 is very long. It's still a big time long shot. So that's another thing is whatever you're putting in is very likely to pay out very little money. That's what happened. It paid nine point something percent. I also would think that I wouldn't want to be a piece of a pool. So let's look at this. Let's say you buy in for the absolute minimum, 525, which is not nothing. You know, $525 is not big money, but it's not like a few bucks. But let's say you buy in 525, and you end up with 180th of the prize pool because that's what 500 would get you out of a 90K group of tickets. So the $2 billion, we'll just take that as a round number, $2 billion, divided by 180 is 11.11 million. Now, that's not small money. Everybody would be very happy to win 11 million. But at the same time, you're putting in $525, which is almost sure to go in the shitter and return very little. It's a very, very small chance you're going to get anything better than a small return, a very small return. So in order to give yourself the chance to win this 11 point whatever million, you're almost surely throwing away 500 bucks. And I just wouldn't want to do that. It just is not going to be enough money to where it makes you tremendously rich, whereas $2 billion would. Like anyone listening to this show who goes to $2 billion would have a major lifestyle change. But if you got $10 million or $11 million, while it would be very nice and you can start getting things you didn't have before and move to a nicer house and drive nicer cars and maybe play higher stakes poker than before, you can't live like a super rich person with $11 million. You can live like a rich person, but not a super rich person. Two billion, different story. So it's one of these things where 
if you're entering something with like a dream to hit, I, I think you might as well just go for the super long odds and maybe you'll just be tremendously, tremendously lucky and be the one to get it, like that person in Altadena. It is true that you're bringing the odds way down to where it's more reasonable that you can hit. But remember, you're not putting $2 into it. You're putting 500 something So really, someone who puts 500 something into it, they're only improving their odds by a factor of like 160 or so. Because remember, there's the admin fee. That's a fairly big factor, but it, it's still not enough, especially to throw away 500 bucks. I, I wouldn't have done it, but it was positive expectation because the odds of winning it were not as long as the payout would be because you're putting $2 in to win $2 billion, and the odds are 1 in 224 million. So it is a positive expectation thing, but it's such variance to it, it's almost sure you're going to lose. By the way, a little side here. I guess uh, Micon saw this as being discussed, and according to T-Buck, who did buy into this and posted on the forum about it, he said that Micon actually inquired about the possibility of buying into this. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because last I heard, and this is a long time ago, but last I heard, Sean Deeb hates Micon. I don't know why. I don't know why he has the big problem with Micon, but he, for some reason he has a big problem with Micon. And I wasn't sure if maybe time passing moderated this, but uh, I thought, hmm, I, would, would Sean Deeb really want to accept the money from Micon if he hates him? Well, the answer was no. <laughs> Apparently T-Buck brought it to Sean Deeb, and Sean Deeb said something to T-Buck like, no way, I don't want to deal with that guy. T-Buck wouldn't tell the whole story, but he, he basically made it clear that Sean Deeb still feels the same way about him and didn't want him to be part of it. So, whatever the grudge is that Sean Deeb has against Micon uh, still continues. I just don't know exactly what the source of that grudge is. By the way, I got a, a little tip from a live listener that there's a lotto app for smartphones that you can use to check a ticket so I guess you could just keep scanning it over and over and over again, scanning the barcodes. And since you have a lot printed on one ticket, you don't have to do it 45,000 times. I assume you could just check each printed ticket and it'll show you which one's won on that ticket. So it still takes some time, but it's not as bad or nearly as bad as going through it manually. Okay, that makes sense. See, for once an app is good for something. I guess Calwatt was right. All right, so moving on. I have an update on Jeffrey Morris, the murderer of poker player Susie Zhao. That was that awful story where Jeffrey Morris met with Susie in Michigan where she had moved. That's where her mom was from. I think she moved in with her mom. And he, Jeffrey Morris was a career criminal and sex offender, really bad guy. And he met up with her, and he basically prepared for the murder. This was not a spontaneous decision to kill her. This wasn't a fit of rage. He actually bought supplies at a hardware store and stole some other supplies to commit the crime, where he bound her and sexually assaulted her and then uh, 
killed her and then uh, doused her with gasoline and burnt her alive. So I guess he didn't kill her until she was uh, she died from the fire. It's a really horrible way to die. And he wasn't a very smart criminal either, so he did not cover his tracks well, and there was tons of evidence against him. He didn't even turn off his cell phone so they could track his movements very easily. And he was convicted pretty easily. The jurors found him guilty pretty quickly. They took less than an hour to return the verdict. The only question came to what sentence would he get? Now, Jeffrey Morris is 62. So any kind of lengthy sentence would be a life sentence because, for example, let's say he was expected to spend 30 years behind bars. It's unlikely he would live much past 30 years anyway. But my guess was he was going to get life in prison without parole, which is the worst sentence they can give in Michigan. There is no death penalty there. At the trial, which we discussed before, his defense tried to point to other unknown male DNA found in the investigation. And there were apparently some tire tracks at the scene, which they claim that authorities didn't really look into. However, they had so much evidence against Morris, it was very clear he did it, including that Morris's DNA was found at an aut- autopsy and that his cell phone showed him clearly going from where the motel was that they met to the place where the body was dumped. So they, they had all the movements right there, and it was his cell phone showing it. So that and other things, they, it was very clear he was the one who did it. Also, the cell phone and internet search evidence showed that uh, he had a number of uh, videos and websites depicting Asian women and slaves, bondage, and sexual encounters in remote wooded areas like the one where she was found that that he had uh, dumped her body. It was very, very clear that he was the one who did it. The judge whose name is Martha Anderson, said, I cannot get over the brutality of this murder and the needlessness of it all. And she said, you took advantage of an individual who was fragile and basically destroyed everything she had accomplished in her life. Jeffrey Morris did not make much of a statement. All he said in court was, is after being sentenced, this time I'm not going to say anything. There's a lot I'd like to say. This time I'm not going to say anything. I'll wait till I come back for an appeal and begin again. He was sentenced to the very worst possible sentence, which was life in prison without the possibility of parole. And remember, he had a lot of convictions in the past. This was not the first time he's been in trouble. This is by far the worst thing he's done, but he has a lot of uh, crime in his past, including sex crime and violent crime. This is someone who shouldn't even have been on the streets. He has been on the sex offender registry since 1989 since he was convicted for criminal sexual conduct in the third degree by force and coercion. He's also been convicted of domestic violence, assault with intent to rob while armed, and failure to comply with sex offender reporting duties. I mean, you, you get enough of this stuff. You, you got to put the way, person away for life. Otherwise, this is what happens. Like the, this is a big problem with repeat violent criminals. If you, you keep giving them another chance, another chance, another chance, especially sex criminals, they eventually do something like this. And then someone innocent gets murdered, like Susie Zhao. 
It's a very sad story. It's good that he got life without parole. And that's going to be that. He talked about an appeal, and he may attempt one, but there's no way it's going to work. Because an appeal is not retrying the entire case. In order to have a successful appeal, he will have to show that the court made an error in some way and have the error basically undone and be brought back to court to do the trial again from that standpoint. So he's not going to be successful with that. I I don't see anything here that would have been improper. So he can try to appeal all he wants. Uh, Most likely this is going to be examined by the court and the appeal will be denied and it'll be that. So I believe that this matter is closed and Jeffrey Bernard Morris will be spending the rest of his life behind bars. But really, if anything is to be gained from this, as I said last time when we discussed the guilty verdict, it would have to be reformed to where certain violent criminals, especially sexual criminals who can't ever rehabilitate, they have to stay behind bars longer or perhaps for life. Otherwise, this happens. This just eventually occurs. So instead of waiting around for someone to get murdered before putting them away for good, if you stop it beforehand, that's the goal. People should only be let out if there's a reasonable belief that they're going to reform and it won't happen again. But someone who's habitually getting in trouble for sex crimes and violent crimes, they shouldn't be out there. It did say at the end of this article I'm reading that Susie Zhao had some difficulty in the final year or so of her life, that uh, her behavior had changed and that she was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And one of her friends said that she acted like Susie, but just more blank and subdued. To me, I took it as possible drug usage. I think she probably met him for something like drug usage. I mean, why else would she meet a character like that at a motel? You know, he didn't kidnap her. She willingly showed up to meet him. The kidnapping, I would say, happened after that. I mean, there was a kidnapping in that he uh, grabbed her and bound her and then uh, burned her. So she obviously didn't submit to that voluntarily, but uh, he didn't just grab her off the street. She voluntarily went to meet with him and didn't know what he had planned. So the question was, why would she meet with him? And it probably had something to do with drugs, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, she was going through some difficult times in her life and apparently had schizophrenia. And uh, she unfortunately met with a, a bad character there who had some very bad plans for her and then went through with them. But the key would have been to have him off the streets in the first place. All right, so I have another update. Do you guys remember the uh, eBay story of the seven employees there who terrorized a couple who had been blogging about eBay for two decades in a dumb plan to where this couple would be then saved by eBay, who would supposedly be helping them and stop all this activity, and then eBay would be seen as heroes, and they'd stop ever criticizing eBay on their blog. Do you remember this whole thing? Oh, I remember, absolutely. Yeah. 
A lot of people were fascinated with this story, and I was fascinated with it. That's why I brought it to the show, even though it had nothing to do with poker and gambling. Because it was something you just never picture happening that a major company would do. You have eBay, one of the biggest companies on the internet, actually harassing longtime bloggers as a way to stop them in this weird plan to stop them from writing bad things about eBay. I mean, you'd picture an individual doing this, some psycho on the internet who dislikes that you're criticizing him. Uh, You could picture some psycho harassing you, but a big company like eBay? (laughs) I mean, uh, you'd never think it's possible, but that's what really happened. So seven employees there were involved. They're no longer with eBay. And in fact, high-level executives, including the CEO, apparently knew about it, but they wormed out of it, as the top executives often do in these situations. But the seven people who were actively doing it didn't get so lucky, and all of them pled guilty, and it was just a matter of sentencing them. When the feds come forth with a case against you and arrest you, you're usually screwed. It's very hard to beat the feds. They usually don't bust you unless they really have the goods. So that's why they have an incredibly high conviction rate, and there's also a lot of guilty pleas because people are very aware that once the feds bring the case against you that you're in very bad shape. So that was definitely the case there here. There was a ton of evidence against all of these people and further evidence of them attempting to lie to law enforcement and, and cover up the whole thing. The situation, I'm not going to go over it all again. We talked about this previously in a long segment on this show. August 5th, 2021 was the episode where I told you the whole story. And it was a pretty long segment. It was over an hour where I told you all the sordid details. I'm not going to do all that again. You can go back and listen to the August 5th, 2021 episode if you'd like to hear that. But I'll quickly go over again what happened here. So there was uh, a couple from a town called Natick, Massachusetts, and they had a blog about eBay. Their names were Ina and David Steiner, and they'd been running this website since like the late 90s. And of course, they were an older couple, and it was a popular blog. It was called E-Commerce Bytes. Even the name of the blog sounds old. For whatever reason eBay executives hated that blog and hated the fact that it was sometimes critical of eBay. It wasn't always critical of eBay. It was more helping people get the most out of their eBay sales and figuring out how to navigate eBay the best as a seller. But if eBay did things that they felt were seller hostile, they would put it up there in their opinion. And so sometimes they didn't write flattering things to eBay. So its impact on eBay's overall business had to be very small. Really, you're reading that blog if you have an intense interest in eBay sales. But really, the average person's not going to run into that blog, and it's it's not going to make a major impact on eBay's business. But for whatever reason, the executives at eBay at the time really, really hated that blog. And they ended up speaking to security about this to eBay's in-house security about what they could perhaps do about this. Now that by itself is not illegal because they could do something from a legal standpoint, such as threaten a lawsuit, 
file a lawsuit, whatever it might be. I don't believe that there was anything that uh, was actionable from a legal standpoint, but it's fine for a security department to discuss with the executives what steps they could take to stop a hostile party on the internet from writing bad things about them. But it went much further than that, of course. The two high-level executives that were involved in the whole thing were the CEO at the time, who's uh, no longer with eBay, Devin Wenig, and Steve Weimer, who was the eBay chief communications officer. Now, Weimer actually wrote to security at the time that they're going to, quote, crush this lady, referring to Ina Steiner. And, uh, and then CEO Wenig texted Weimer weeks later, take her down. So they can't say they knew nothing, but their claims were that they thought the security department was going to take her down legally and not engage in illegal activity, which I don't believe to be true, but there just wasn't quite enough to get them. So they skated out of this, and believe it or not, they now have other positions that are very, very high up at respected organizations that knew about what was going on here at eBay and somehow didn't care. So Steve Weimer, the communications officer, who was fired, by the way, he was hired the next year as the head of a local branch of the Boys and Girls Club of America, even though they knew about his involvement at what happened at eBay. And even though the CEO Wenig's messages were deemed inappropriate by eBay, he was uh, never charged, and uh, he ended up leaving voluntarily with a $57 million severance package and then was elected to the board of General Motors. So it shows you that it pays to be rich and powerful, and you get away with things. But anyway, the people who weren't so rich and powerful who actually executed these plans to harass the couple, they have all been charged by the Feds. So these seven people who were charged as follows. James Baugh was the ringleader of the whole thing. He was the senior director of safety and security at eBay. He pled guilty in April 2022. David Harville, he was eBay's former director of global resiliency. He pled guilty in May of 2022. Stephanie Pop was the senior manager of global intelligence. She pled guilty in October 2020. Stephanie Stockwell, who was the other manager of eBay's Global Intelligence Center. She also pled guilty in October 2020. Veronica Z, ZEA, was a contractor working as an intelligent analyst in that same Global Intelligence Center. She pled guilty in October 2020. Brian Gilbert, who was a former police captain, who was the senior manager of special operations for eBay's global security team. He pled guilty in October 2020 both to conspiring to commit cyberstalking and conspiring to tamper with a witness. He was trying to help cover it up and using his law enforcement background to do so. And Philip Cook pled guilty in October 2020. He was a supervisor of security operations, and he was also former law enforcement, a former police captain. So six of these seven have been sentenced. The only one who hasn't been sentenced is uh, Brian Gilbert, 
The rest were all sentenced between August and November of 2022. So there was not a single not guilty plea when this was all said and done. At first, uh, James Baugh was going to plead not guilty, but he changed it. And the same with uh, David Harville. That's why they pled guilty later on. I think they realized this was not going to work, any kind of not guilty plea. So they all did plea deals. As far as this group, from my analysis of the whole story, uh, definitely James Baugh deserved the harshest sentence because he was the ringleader of the whole thing. But I thought the one who deserved probably the second harshest sentence was Stephanie Pop because she was the one managing these Twitter accounts that were uh, sending threatening messages to Ina Steiner. And she wasn't doing it as a female. She was making fake accounts of these scary-looking big Samoan dudes that were supposedly angry with her and sending violent threats. And also she was arranging stuff to be sent to the Steiner's house, like uh, a bloody pig's mask and stuff really representing like violence is coming. So she did a lot of really nasty things. She was basically given the task of doing this stuff, and she did some really nasty things to scare this couple. So she was the one making this stuff happen. She was told to do it from above, but as far as the actions to really, really scare and terrorize the Steiners, uh, she was the one taking a lot of that action. Then there was also a plan to break and enter into the garage and put a tracking device on David Steiner's car. I know uh, James Ball was involved with that. I believe uh, Brian Gilbert was the other one. Forget if it was him or Philip Cook. Uh, Stephanie Stockwell didn't actually travel to Natick. She was staying back in San Jose and was uh, giving a combination of guidance and trying to also warn them if it seemed like uh, police were on the way and she was monitoring it from a distance. She wasn't, in my opinion, as major as some of these others involved. And uh, Veronica Z, she was there in Natick. And in fact, she was the driver that was found of the vehicle that was following David Steiner. However, she was like the lowest person on the totem pole. And while she knew what she was doing, she was more of uh, a person just following orders to do exactly what she was told. Uh, It's a little different than Stephanie Pop, where she was told to use social media to intimidate the Steiners and just see whatever other way she could do it. And then just came up with her own ways to really scare her and scare Ina Steiner and to like Stephanie Pop did some really nasty things like on her own that were her own ideas and Veronica Z was more of a a person who was just kind of following orders do this do that so I thought she was a more minor player in the whole thing too she actually did an interview with the New York Times about the whole thing what's interesting is I can't find a picture of Stephanie Pop or Stephanie Stockwell Veronica Z voluntarily posed for a picture for the Times, but it's it's interesting I can't find these others. There's not even a mugshot, nothing. I don't know why they're protecting their pictures here, but some I, I see why Stephanie Pop doesn't want her picture out there, but I don't know why the feds haven't put that out. But let's get to what the sentences were. Veronica Z got two years probation with the first year to be served in home confinement and a $5,000 fine. That's probably a lot better than she was fearing. She was pretty much thinking that she's going to be spending time in prison. 
the fact that she is only going to be in home confinement for a year, and then the second year is just plain probation, uh, that was a pretty good result for her. I think she probably should have had some real prison, but as I said, of, of the seven, she was probably the least culpable. So, all right. I'm not totally bothered by that sentence. I still think it was a bit light because she knew what she was doing. She wasn't just following orders, believing this was noble and right. I mean, she she knew she was taking part in harassing an innocent couple on behalf of eBay. So you got to know that. She's an adult. She was given orders, Croft. She could have been the whistleblower, though. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of insane that these people got time to deal with this shit. Yeah. So, I mean, like... Really, once once you agree to do this on behalf of a company, it's not like she was helping a friend harass someone that screwed over her friend. I mean, this is a company. She's she's doing this as her job to to screw with an innocent older couple who's writing a blog that's critical of eBay. I mean, how how you can do this and not realize that fucked up this is? It's like I, I think you belong in prison once you've done that. Now, I'm not saying she should spend her whole life in prison for this, but to to get no prison time, I think it's a little on the light side. James Baugh, the ringleader. He got a much worse sentence. He got the stiffest sentence of everybody. 57 months in prison, two years of supervised release, and a fine of $40,000. Okay. That's more of a sensible sentence that was given here. Almost five years in prison. And by the way, he's going to serve most of it. You, you don't get out that early in federal prison. David Harville, who is a co-conspirator, he got two years in prison, two years of supervised release, and a fine of 20000 Philip Cook, Stephanie Pop, Stephanie Stockwell, and Brian Gilbert all pled guilty. As I mentioned, uh, Gilbert uh, hasn't gotten sentenced yet. Cook was sentenced to... 18 months in prison, and that was last year. He was the first one sentenced. So he's probably close to getting out, assuming that he started serving his sentence right away. I don't know if he did or not, but in July 2021, he was sentenced to 18 months, provided they took him to prison in July 21, then he'll be out in two months. Stephanie Pop was sentenced on October 11, 2022, to one year and one day in prison. Now, I think that was way too short. I thought she should have gotten the second longest sentence. And the fact that she got less than David Harville and less than uh, Philip Cook. Now, I understand Philip Cook got extra time because he was a law enforcement officer and was uh, a former law enforcement officer and was abusing that in order to try to cover it up. And that definitely deserved time. But, I mean, Pop did some really nasty things there. I do have to wonder if she got some female privilege, which does exist in the justice system, that uh, they just have a hard time sentencing women for as long as men for the same crimes. But if you read some of the stuff she wrote and saw the way she was really trying to put a scare into the Steiners, I mean, it's one thing to follow someone around and try to find ways to scare them lightly. I mean, she's sending bloody pig's masks in the mail and creating fake accounts of big Samoan dudes threatening that, you know, they're going to do anything to protect their family. You you fucking bitch, you fucking cunt, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was pretty nasty stuff. And she was not told, like, do this, do that. She was just 
given general orders to try to scare the Steiners and, and went and did this stuff on her own. So she, she had to have a pretty twisted mind to do all this. So to only get one year and one day in prison, I mean, at least there's a year in prison for her, but to me that seemed pretty short. I, I thought she should have gotten two years at least. Stephanie Stockwell got two years of probation with one year of home confinement, just like Veronica Z. Again, I think a little bit light, but I thought she was the second least culpable of everybody. Stockwell never actually traveled to Natick, Massachusetts. She also didn't do any of the uh, actual harassment. She was more of the back-end support for this operation. So she was definitely part of the operation, definitely knew what she was doing, definitely knew she was harassing an innocent couple on behalf of eBay. So for that reason, I think she should have had real prison time. But uh, as far as actual harassment that was done... Uh, she didn't actually do any of it, so I think that's a big difference than just providing support. So the only one that was not sentenced is uh, Gilbert. I'm not sure why his sentence hasn't happened yet. But six of the seven... Where's he working now, Jeff? Uh, I, I don't know where he's working. I, see, I, the, the rest of them, these who aren't the executives, I, I don't know what type of jobs they're going to get. These were not people with prestigious positions. I mean, I'm sure they were paid well, especially like James Baugh, who was the senior director of safety and security to eBay. But it's different to be that and and like the CEO or the chief communications officer. So I have a feeling a lot of these people are going to have a hard time getting good jobs again, especially if they get Googled. It was interesting is Brian Gilbert pled guilty two years ago. So I don't know why he's the last to be sentenced. You had uh, Bob pleading guilty in April of 22 and Harville ple- pleading guilty in May of 22, and both of them have gotten sentenced already. So basically the sentence, the sentences ranged from two years probation all the way up to the 57 months in prison for the ringleader. And as I said, they'll, they'll be serving most of their sentences because in federal prison there's really no way out of that. It's not like in state prison where you can get out due to overcrowding or good behavior. And there's, there's all, way, all kinds of ways to cut time off your sentence. But in federal prison, it's not like that. Now, federal prison is actually more pleasant than state prison in most cases. State prison tends to have worse criminals in there. So you're with a much more violent and difficult population. And also you're just treated worse in general. Federal prison, it's easier to serve there. But, you know, it's still prison. And James Baugh is going to be there for almost five years. But this is really an amazing crime. I I had meant to ask the Steiners if they wanted to come on the show and tell us about it and... Maybe now that this is all over, I, I believe they're still suing eBay, so maybe they can't because uh, it might affect their lawsuit. At least the criminal matter is just about over. Once uh, Gilbert gets sentenced, it'll be completely over. And I don't think the Steiners have anything to do with it at this point. I would like to talk to them, but who would have ever pictured eBay would have been doing this? Like, if you're getting the harassment like this, you're you're wondering where it came from, but you're never going to suspect that it's going to be eBay itself. Also, not to retell the whole story again, but there was a guy named Fido Master that they were really, really after. So Fido Master was someone else who was critical of eBay, I think mainly on Twitter. 
And the idiots in the security departments at eBay were convinced that Fido Master was either David Steiner, Ina Steiner, or a friend of theirs. He, they just could not picture that there were two completely separate entities that would be criticizing eBay online, which is crazy. Like, they're a huge company, and there's a lot of people with issues with them. And somehow it's impossible to think that there's a Twitter troll who is separate from a company that writes blogs about eBay. They have to be the same people, they thought, or at least all associated. So really this whole thing had two purposes. It was both to harass the Steiners and make them think that eBay was saving them from the harassment, and also to try to get them to either reveal themselves as Fido Master in some way, or scare them into thinking that they've been found out as Fido Master, or to get Fido Master to show himself. They even tried to trick Fido Master to show up somewhere and get like a, a thumb drive of something and he didn't fall for it. So the, it, he was never found. Fido Master was never found. But it was pretty clear the Fido Master had nothing to do with the Steiners, and these morons at eBay couldn't figure that out. Like, you could have given this to me, I could have figured this out in like two seconds. I could have looked at what he was posting, where he was posting it, his style, their style, and I would have said, you know what, I can't be 100% sure, but I think there's a high chance it's just a separate troll. But somehow these geniuses, seven people at eBay, couldn't figure this out. It's crazy. Like, how do you run a huge company like that and not think there could be two different entities that are critical of you on the internet? Like, if there are two different people who are critical of this show on the internet, I wouldn't say, oh, they have to be associated. And this is a much smaller operation than eBay, obviously. Like, I would think, okay, we have thousands of listeners. Yes, it's possible I could have two listeners at the same time who are trolling me. (laughs) I wouldn't say they have to be associated unless there was something very clearly that links them. The fact that eBay couldn't picture this is insane. Shows you how clueless some of these people are. So a lot of this was to try to get to Fido Master, which failed. They didn't even get Fido Master. I want to talk about the Mattress Mac sports bet on the Astros. So the Astros won the World Series. I'm not happy about it. I don't like them since they cheated the Dodgers five years ago in the World Series. They won this year presumably without cheating. And Mattress Mac, who runs a mattress store, a mattress and furniture store, placed a large futures bet on the Houston Astros winning the World Series. Mattress Mac, whose real name is Jim McInvale, and he's 71 years old, he is a big Astros fan, and he has a furniture and mattress store called a Gallery Furniture. He's known to place very large sports bets on Houston teams, usually the Astros. But it's not what it appears to be. So people kept hearing about this gigantic bet for the Astros to win the World Series that he placed before the season and paid out $75 million. By the way, he also bet on the Cincinnati Bengals to win the Super Bowl. And that was the largest mobile wager in sports betting history. But let's get back to this here. He placed his bet, and then the Astros won, and he was given a $75 million payout. So there was a lot of reactions to this, and I had people asking me over and over what I think of this, and 
how amazing it is that this guy won so much money and how did he know the Astros were going to win the whole thing and how could someone risk that much? And, and I have to explain the whole thing to them that it's not what it appears to be. So the way he did this was on May 13th, so I guess it wasn't before the season, I guess it was uh, uh, about a month into the season, he put a $3 million bet at plus 1,000, which is 10 to 1 odds for the Astros to win the World Series. So that would give him $30 million. And then he also placed various other bets on the Astros throughout the year to where them winning the World Series would add up to a $75 million win. It wasn't all with one book. He bet $3 million with Caesars, $2 million with BetMGM, $2 million with Barstool Sports, $1 million with Win, $1 million with Unibet, and $1 million with Betfred. So what was this? Was just a rich guy who was obsessed with the Astros that placed a bet and got lucky? Is it someone who bets this big every year and this year happened to hit, but overall he's down? Or is it something else? Well, it's actually something else. Mattress Mac has a very gimmicky store where he has these promotions where if the Astros win the World Series or if some other sporting event happens the way he's predicting, that they get what they bought for free. So what he's doing by betting on that team to win is covering his expense to give refunds to all these people. That's all he's really doing. But you may still say, well, he doesn't have to do this at all. So he's still overall spending money no matter what happens. So... Even if this is a hedge against having to refund all these people if the Astros win, he's still putting money in the whole thing either way, right? Well, yes. But remember, this doesn't mean he's selling these items at a good price. He's selling these items at a marked up price that people are willing to pay because they're probably Astros fans, or even if they're not. They like the idea of possibly getting the item for free, they like the excitement of already having the mattress or other piece of furniture that they've bought and knowing that if the Astros manage to win the World Series, they get the money back for it. And if the Astros don't, okay, no big deal. They've already bought it and they have something they really bought. So it's not like gambling to them. Gambling is where you put money for something that you think is going to happen. If it happens, you win. If it doesn't happen, you lose and you have nothing to show for it. That's one thing that kind of sucks about gambling. When you look at money you lost and go, well, shit, look at this money that I don't have anymore and I got nothing for it. Look at what I could have done with this money. I could have bought something nice. I could have taken a nice vacation. I could have given it away to someone who's in need. Instead, it just uh, a bookie has it. An online site has it. A casino has it. Well, that's kind of shitty. Now, of course, the proper way to think about it, if you're a positive expectation gambler, is there's no way you're going to win all the time. So you've got to average it all out and not obsess over when you lose. But these people who are buying these mattresses and pieces of furniture that are marked up, as far as they're concerned, they've already bought something and they have something tangible for it. They're not gambling. They're just buying an item that they really need. And wow, if they happen to get a refund for it because the Astros winning the World Series, well, then great. That's a bonus. So that's the way these people see it. And yes, some of them might be aware that they're paying a little bit more money, but they still don't see it as gambling. 
And many of them are not even aware they're paying more money. Because let me tell you about the mattress industry. It's a weird industry. There are very few retail industries in the U.S. where you can walk into a store and negotiate. I'm not talking about a little flea market or things like that. I'm talking about regular stores. You can't just go in and say, ah, I see you're charging $100 for this item. I'll give you 70 Like if you do that in the grocery store or at an electronics store or at any kind of other retail outlet, clothing store, whatever it might be, you can't just offer them a certain fraction of the price and then hope they'll accept it. Unless there's something wrong with the merchandise where you're saying, okay, well, give me this discount because it has this problem. Other than that, they're not going to negotiate with you. They'll say, if you don't want to pay the posted price, then scram. But mattresses are different. With mattresses, you can negotiate. And in fact, if you pay the price they are asking for the mattress, you just got ripped off. Not scammed, but you got ripped off. You got a bad price because you didn't know how to shop for mattresses. You always need to negotiate at the mattress store. And if you haven't been, you've been making a mistake. And you're not looked down upon for doing it. In fact, it's the other way around. They see you as a smart consumer. They wish you didn't, but they are not going to look down on you. They're going to say, oh, this is someone who's more informed about buying mattresses. Now, it's not as easy to price shop with mattresses as you would think, because you can't just Google the mattress type and see where it's selling the cheapest. Because... These mattresses all have different brand names, or at least sub-names within the brand, to where it makes it impossible to comparison shop, and that's on purpose. So you have to kind of just wing it unless you have an insider in the mattress industry who can tell you which mattresses have the same names as each other, and then you can start figuring it out. And if you have an insider, you can also hear the bottom price that they will take for it at other stores and then go from there. When I went to Vegas, when I moved to Vegas in 2004, and really the first thing I did was just stop at a random mattress store that I believe I found in the phone book. Of course, there was no smartphone in 2004 to go look this up, but I believe I pulled over at a payphone and looked up one in the phone book. I did have GPS on my car, so I entered it into my GPS and... uh, went to the store and walked in and said, hi, I want to buy a mattress and I want one I can have delivered today. Otherwise, I'd have nowhere to sleep. And I negotiated with the guy, but he wouldn't go any lower and I didn't know if this was really his bottom price or if I could go further and it was very hard to tell from talking to him. So I did have someone who's a friend of a friend who worked at a mattress store and it took a little while, but I got a hold of that person and they told me, which one it was equivalent to and what their bottom line price was. So then I came back in and I said, yes, uh, while I was out, I did some research and I found out this mattress is equivalent to such and such sold elsewhere. And this is the bottom line price I know they'll take. So that's the price I wanted for. Like I told them the truth and he thought about it and said, uh, okay, fine. (laughs) So I saved uh, some additional money. And they delivered it to me, and that was the mattress that I slept on in Las Vegas in my various apartments I lived there. But let's get back to Mattress Mac. Mattress Mac 
is not one of these guys you could negotiate with very well. Mattress Mac marks everything up more than other stores do. And he does this because he knows that people want these little refund deals that he has, where if such and such sports team wins, then they get their money back completely, usually the Astros. So people are willing to pay the higher prices for that reason. So that's what's going on with Mattress Mac. By the way, furniture stores are like this too. Not all of them, but some furniture stores will also negotiate. It's all along the same lines. Mattress Mac sells both. Ken Fuchs, the COO of Caesars Digital, remember he placed a $3 million bet with Caesars that paid $30 million, made the statement about the payout to Mattress Mac, which was the largest payout in sports betting history. What can we say? We just wrote the biggest check in sports betting history to Mattress Mac for $30 million. Would we do it all again? You bet. While Matt, while Mac may have won this round on the field, we're proud of how we teamed up to support first responders and military veterans in Houston, Philly, and Atlantic City. And to Mac, we tip our Astros cap and remind him that he can now support his Texans and Rockets, both attractively appraised at uh, plus 100000 to win a championship. The Astros are also currently plus 550 to win next year's Fall Classic. So he was joking that the Houston Texans in the NFL and the Houston Rockets in the NBA are terrible and that he can try to bet on them too. And that the Astros, who will not be terrible in 2023, are 5.5 to 1 to repeat. They're offering he can bet again. But of course he's going to say something positive, this COO of Caesars Digital. Because they have to pay Mattress Mac either way. So are they going to be sore losers? Oh, this sucks? You know, we hate paying $30 million to this guy? No. They got to pay it either way, so they have to act like their attitude is good about this and that they have no problem. Of course, they wished that he didn't win it, but they were willing to take the action. Not every book will take action like this. It depends how much total they are receiving in sports bets coming through their system. And if they can absorb large bets like this, then it's no problem. If this would be so disproportionate to where it would dwarf all the other wins that they would get combined, then they don't want it. So Caesar Digital must get enough bets to where they were willing to take a $3 million bet at 10 to 1. So anyway, this is just a, a business trick. This wasn't really gambling. Because if the Astros lost, then he would lose the bet, but he wouldn't have to refund all these people. If the Astros win, he has to refund all these people, but he wins the bet. So he's probably betting an amount to where it's going to be the same either way. That's probably why he distributed the bet throughout the year based upon the business they were doing. So don't look at it like a bet. A bet is something that you're making independent of other things. If the bet is hedging against something you're doing in business that's directly tied to the bet you're making, then it really means nothing. It's like, let's say someone makes a bet with me that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. And so if the Dodgers win, I have to pay them 
many millions of dollars. And then I just go turn around and I make the equivalent bet over at the Caesar Sportsbook. Other than the house juice, which I could even pass on to the other person and just claim that's the juice I'm taking, that would be illegal. But putting that aside, I could do this to where I could have no loss. That if that person's wins, then I also win from Caesars and just hand them the money. If that person loses, then they pay me and I pay Caesars. So provided I had the money to put up front to Caesars, it all breaks even for me, aside from the house juice. So if I were to win that side of it, I wouldn't really win any money in real life, but to everyone looking from the outside, it would look like I just had a tremendous bet that just won a fortune. So a lot of times in gambling, things are not what they appear to be. And in Mattress Mac's case, that's definitely true. Next, we are going to talk about the Formula One race that's going to be in Las Vegas. And when I heard about this, I thought it was really weird. But it's coming. It's going to be here in uh, four days. And apparently it's very expensive if you want to stay on the Strip for when they close the Strip. So for whatever reason, they thought it was a good idea to shut down the entire Las Vegas Strip on November 18th and have Formula One race cars speed around there in what's an actual Formula One race. And I remember hearing this analysis. How are they going to do that? I guess it's so weird. They're going to turn the strip into a Formula One racetrack and they're just going to stop all the traffic there? I mean, I know they do it during New Year's that they close the strip off to vehicle traffic, but that's only once a year and it's pretty predictable. I bet a lot of people coming to Vegas aren't even expecting this, ones that aren't specifically showing up for this and that had booked before this date was selected or before it got really expensive. So they just think they're coming for a week in November or sometime during the week of November and then they find out the bad news that uh, the strip is closed and there's going to be a bunch of uh, Formula One cars zooming by. But this is something that apparently is very desirable to be in Vegas for. I don't know if people want to watch it from their hotel rooms or what, but apparently the rooms have just gotten to be outrageously priced. This was announced in yeah, it's March. It's funny, Druff, because I was there last weekend. Yeah. And uh, a buddy of mine that lives there came down to meet us and he said it was horrible. It took him like an hour to get there due to the F1 traffic. I mean, I wonder, maybe they were doing some construction or something like that? Um, I know that they were doing a little bit of a test run, so that's probably what it was. Because I, maybe I saw, that's what it was. I saw yeah. a video of yeah. it. Uh, yeah, November 3rd is when the test run was being done, so that's probably when it yeah, happened. Yeah, it, it took them like an hour and a half to come meet us. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, when something's going on or something's wrong on the Strip, you can just be stuck forever and ever and ever and it's really frustrating you feel like you'll never get out of it so in march they announced that this was going to be one of three formula one races in the u.s and then in october stefano domenicali who is the president and ceo of formula one said the las vegas grand prix is set to be an incredible event and in just over 12 months, the best drivers on the planet will be racing through the streets of the entertainment capital of the world. 
I guess that was uh, October 21 he said that. Then he said, this is going to be something no one will want to miss, and the energy and enthusiasm for the race is already building. We know our passionate U.S. fans and those from all over the world will want to be there to witness firsthand, and we can't wait for November 18th, uh, 2023. Oh, wait a minute, this is 23? So why am I talking about this now? I was sure this is November 1822. I've got to read more carefully when I prepare for this show. Okay, it's all coming together now. See, I was wondering why he's talking about 12 months from now. Oh, boy. Okay, well, since we're already talking about it, I might as well uh, finish this off. So apparently, the uh, they did the dry run. I, I'm sure it was this year because they did that little test run on November 3rd of this year, as Calwatt was talking about. It happened to his friend. But apparently the, the actual race is going to take place in 23. But apparently the cost to be there is insane right now, even though we're a year away. The Rio is going to be $566 a night during that week. And then the Caesars Palace Rooms will be $1,519 a night and up. That's the cheapest room there. The Venetian is fourteen ninety nine a night for the cheapest room there. So they're really expecting to get a premium for this race, presumably for the novelty of people being able to look down from their hotel rooms and see it. But there's a lot of hotels that either don't have a very good view of the Strip or ones that have a lot of rooms that don't face the Strip. So what are those people going to do, paying all that money and facing the wrong way? So I don't quite get that. There's probably ways to view it there, but you couldn't you just stay off the strip and then come to one of these properties? I guess with the strip closed, it'll be hard to do. I, I don't know. I guess there's some appeal to it if you can actually look down from your hotel room and see it, but not worth all that money. It's kind of weird, but not worth all that money, in my opinion. Now, keep in mind, since it's a year away, this kind of changes everything. I thought these were the prices currently. Since this is the price they're charging now for a year away, this might be something that they're hoping to get. Either suckers booking it now that don't check the price later, or maybe the demand will be high enough to where they can even raise the price later or at least maintain these prices. I've seen it before where they anticipate something's going to be very, very in high demand and they can charge insane prices only to have to drop it much more when it gets closer to the event. A good example of this was New Year's Eve 2000, which was thought to be one of the biggest things in Vegas in a very long time. And it was assumed that it would be a West Coast alternative to the Times Square celebration in New York, and I heard it heavily advertised on the radio that this is where you need to be, this is like the West Coast Times Square, blah, blah, blah. Out of curiosity, I called up the Las Vegas Hilton, which I was staying a lot at at the time, and I asked, how much is it to stay for New Year's Eve on uh, December 31st, 1999? And they told me, (laughs) $1,500. And keep in mind, this was the Las Vegas Hilton. And keep in mind, this was in 2000 when money was worth more than today. So 
you calculate in inflation, it's over 2000 well over 2000 So I said, yep, not doing that. Well, sure enough, as it got closer, it fell and fell and fell. I don't remember what the final price was for the Hilton. I didn't end up going, but it was something way more reasonable, like I think around 500 or something along those lines. So they didn't get anywhere near the 1500 they were hoping for. And it wasn't just Las Vegas Hilton. The entire Las Vegas Strip dramatically lowered the price because they just overpriced it, thinking that everyone's going to pay it. And turned out there wasn't that much interest to pay those type of prices. That may be the case here. We'll have to see as we get closer. I'm still kind of trying to figure out in my mind whether I think this is really going to be something that has mass appeal or if this is just kind of an oddity that people aren't going to want to pay a lot to see. Because remember, they have to fill a ton of hotel rooms at this price. It's not, it's not just the best rooms that are going for this. These are just basic rooms, probably ones that don't even have a view of it. So is someone really going to pay $1,500 to stay at Caesars Palace in a room that faces the other way? In the worst tower in the property? I don't think so. so. I think they're just kind of fishing with what they guess might be a price they can get in the best case. And then they'll lower it from there. That's kind of the cruise ship model. A lot of people think that cruises you do best buying early. And unless you're buying suites, you're not doing the best buying early. You're usually doing the best buying late. And that's because they do the same thing. They start it up at a very high price, and then as it gets closer, they start lowering it. Since they have nothing really to go on here as far as reference, they may be just starting very high. So that'll be happening next year. I, I probably wouldn't have made this a topic if I knew it was a year away. I mean, I, I read November 18th. I, I see the thing of these cars zooming around on November 3rd. I'm, I'm sure it's the 18th of 22. Yeah. Okay. Got that one wrong. Let's move on to our final poker and gambling topic, and that's about Massachusetts Gaming not being happy with Encore because they feel that Encore is not hiring enough women. Now, why does Massachusetts Gaming care about this, and why doesn't Nevada Gaming do the same thing to casinos in Vegas that don't hire enough women? Well, every state is different, and Massachusetts only handed out one license for the Boston area. So this was a very, very valuable license. Caesars ended up dropping out of the running for it because they accidentally hired a mobster to get the Cromwell ready. They really did that. They hired a Russian mobster and didn't realize it to renovate the Cromwell. So Wynn ended up getting it and calling it Encore. And we've talked about this before, Encore Boston. But Massachusetts Gaming has various demands of Encore Boston. And one of them has to do with who they hire. And I think this whole thing is uh, affirmative action out of control, and in more ways than one. So Massachusetts Gaming wanted the following of Encore Boston. Number one, they wanted a lot of locals to be hired. They didn't want people coming from out of the area. 
they wanted Encore Boston to benefit the local area. Even though it's a state commission, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You'd think they'd only care about Massachusetts people being hired, but no, they care about Boston area people being hired. So they really wanted a lot of locals to be hired. That was one demand. Another demand is a very diverse hiring force. So they really wanted Boston Encore to hire people of color, people born outside the U.S., women, and any other diverse category you could imagine. The more hires were uh, non-U.S. born, non-white males, the better. I'm not kidding. That was really what uh, the Gaming Commission was going for, for some reason. Well, Encore fell a bit short. Encore must be very misogynistic because you know what? They were told that they were supposed to hire 50% women. And you know what they dared to do? They hired 45% women. Oh, no. Ah. Ah. They must hate women at Encore Boston Harbor because they hired only 45% women instead of 50% women. Oh, my. But really, they were scolded for that, which is so stupid. It's not like they hired 20% women and the gaming commission is like, okay, well, what's up with that? Why are you hiring 80% men? This is 45% women. Why? How do they know it didn't just fall that way? How do they know it didn't have to do with who applied? Maybe more, a lot more men applied. I bet a lot more men applied. But they did not like that. It was 45% women, 55% men. However, they were very happy that in the other diversity categories, Encore Boston Harbor did a very good job. That they hired a lot of people of color. They hired a lot of local and long-term residents. And they hired a lot of people born outside the United States. But that's kind of a weird category. Now, they're not talking about illegal people. They're talking about people who are legally in the U.S. but not born in the U.S., which is fine to hire them, but I don't see why that should be something that they should be striving to hire. I think those people should be equivalent to those born in the U.S. You shouldn't give a preference to those born in the U.S., but uh, you also shouldn't give a preference to the a preference to those born not in the U.S. I, why is that a category where they should hire people over another? Can you imagine losing your job to someone because they're born in another country and it's not because of whatever language they speak that they need a translator or something? If it's just you two are... That's probably why Caesars hired the Russian guy, because they thought they were hiring somebody outside the U.S. Ah, see, you figured it out. Caesars like, okay, we're going to show how diverse we are. We are going to hire a Russian to renovate the former Bill's Gambling Hall into the Cromwell. Ah, we're going to get points for that. Oh, shit, he was a Russian gangster. Well, we have egg on our face now. Yeah, I bet it was something like that. Amazing. So, yeah, yeah, they were trying to hire people outside the U.S., the ones who were born outside the U.S., to impress gaming, and did. Apparently, gaming was, was very happy with that. They just didn't like the 45% women versus the 50%, which was the goal. Of the new hires, 30% came from the food services industry, 7% were either unemployed or underemployed. And I guess that was also a bit low. Apparently, they uh, 
we're told that there's clear job growth as a result of the casino showing up there, but they questioned uh, why Encore Boston Harbor did not hire uh, 50% women when their projected goal was, was 50%. The initial hiring goal was 40% for minority populations, 50% women, 3% veterans, and 75% locals. But apparently the pandemic and shutdown somehow impacted these goals. Now, I, I don't really believe that. Like, like, why should that change anything? We're talking about percentages, not raw numbers. I, I could see where they'd say, well, the change in the number of people available to work impacted our ability to hire enough people. But I can't see why that should impact the percentages. This kind of sounds like bullshit to me. And apparently these uh, hiring goals are an issue for all three casinos in Massachusetts, not just Encore Boston Harbor, but uh, also Plain Ridge Park Casino and MGM Springfield, which are not in the Boston area, but still under the jurisdiction of uh, Massachusetts Gaming. Apparently, regarding full-time employment, male or white employees had very slightly higher rates of full-time employment, while female and Asian workers had slightly lower rates of full-time employment. Black and Hispanic workers had a proportionate share of full-time jobs for those who sought one. Well, okay. But this is where you're overanalyzing, because this is all not going to be equal. There's no way to have all this be like totally equal. So if it happens to fall one way, it doesn't mean you're discriminating. It just like if it's fairly close, what's the problem? I don't I don't see why they're obsessing over this. And really, the goal should be to hire people who are best for the job. That you don't discriminate against people, but that you also don't hire inferior people because they happen to have a certain skin cover color, or uh, or that they're women. But you have to reach a certain quota, so you have to hire them anyway. It really should just be, we're going to ignore their color, we're going to ignore their age, we're going to ignore their skin color and, and their uh, sexual preference and their gender. We're going to ignore all these attributes, and we're just going to hire the best people who can do the job the best. That's what they should do. And the problem with creating these quotas, if you don't get enough people applying in each category, then you do have to usually hire inferior people because that's what happens. It doesn't matter what color they are. It matters if you just don't have a high enough number of them, then you're forced to accept inferior candidates and rejecting good candidates where you're getting overrepresented. So that's where you can shoot yourself in the foot when you're trying to hire according to quotas. I don't agree with quotas. I don't think that should ever be done. I I think the goal should be discrimination-free hiring where you just hire the best person, whatever they are. Now, the one exception would be hiring from the local area. I can understand that being an agreement if a community is going to accept a large business that can be disruptive to the city. So I can understand where for this casino to be built there, that it has to benefit the local area. And if it does not benefit the local area, then the burden it brings is not worth it to the local area, and it's not fair to them. So it's fine if the bargain is you get to be here, but you have to mostly employ the local population. I'm fine with that. If they want to make 75% locals the requirement, okay. But this whole thing with the women and the people of color, that's the wrong way to go about it. And the problem is when you get these situations where they just have to hire a certain number of people in each category, this is where you start to have service issues. Because again, you want to hire all the best people not to perfectly fall into the category boxes that you were hoping to get. 
So anytime you have to hire a worse person over a better person because of the color of their skin or their gender or their age or whatever it might be or their, the status of where they were born, I, you're making the service of the business worse. And that should never be the goal. You should never knowingly hire someone that is going to make the company worse. You should never knowingly hire someone who is worse than somebody else that you'd like to hire, but you can't because you're afraid it's going to look bad. That benefits nobody. I don't know why gaming is so obsessed with this in Massachusetts. Again, I understand the locals thing. The rest of it I don't get. I thought maybe it was because of Steve Wynn's history with mistreating women that worked at the Wynn, where he sexually harassed women there. And maybe this is kind of like a thing they were doing back for women in general, that since Steve Wynn was a sexual harasser, that they're going to make sure that 50% women get hired, even just for optics. But apparently not, because the other two casinos, which have nothing to do with Wynn, are also under this uh, requirement. What I really don't understand is the born outside the U.S. thing. Like All you're likely to do there is hire people who don't speak English very well. And I find that annoying in service jobs when I just can't communicate with them. And it's nothing against people born in other countries. If someone's born in another country and they can speak the language very well, then, okay, I don't care. I don't care if they have an accent. But I have had it where I'm dealing with a service employee and they just don't speak good English and it's very hard to explain my concern. And it can be very frustrating. Just as I do not think I would be a good hire in a place where I don't speak the language well. So I, I don't see why you should give preference to these people. That's kind of weird, too. Anyway, kind of a weird story. That's why I thought I would tell it out here. I've never seen a gaming commission that's so concerned with these quotas. Very odd. Yeah, but it was probably something for the city and the state. And they're like, oh, we could get a big chunk. Of the, of the requirements dealt with. If, you know, yeah, maybe it was something along some those lines. Yeah. Over the casino, so it was probably bigger than that. Yeah, maybe just to get people behind the casinos being there in Massachusetts in the first place, they had to agree to this. Like, Maybe that was a selling point of, okay, well, we'll get these casinos here, and yeah, you may not love that idea, but we're going to get a lot more people working who are minorities and those not born in the U.S. and women and you know, people who we think have a harder time getting into the workforce, uh, the casinos will employ them. We'll make sure of it. So, Yeah, and they probably pitched it that way to get it overseas, overseas Caesars or whoever they were competing with. They're probably like, look, we'll hire these people. You already have to have these numbers and these quotas you're not meeting, so we'll help you kill a big chunk of this. Yeah. And then they got the deal, and then they're not doing it. So probably <laughs> something like that. It's so hard to get workers now anyway. That's the other problem. Is this isn't 2019 anymore. It's hard to get right. good workers even without a quota. You just can't get enough people. And yeah, a lot of times the people you get suck. So the last thing they need is to make this even more difficult. I mean, every place I go, there's short workers and the workers aren't very good. And this is the last thing we need complicating everything. They should at least suspend this until the worker shortage is over. Crazy. Yeah, well, these companies, these recruiting idiots at these companies. I mean, just the whole system's broken. Yep. Yeah, I, I just want to return to better customer service everywhere, not just at casinos, like everywhere. I just want reachable customer service on the phone. I want people who know what they're doing. 
I, I just want the 2019 situation back, and we're not getting it. Oh, well. Well, speaking of uh, changes after 2019, I want to talk about a COVID topic. And this is about second COVID infections, which is something I'm concerned with because it has now been over five months since I got COVID. And I've wondered, how will I experience COVID the second time? Which I'm sure I will eventually experience COVID a second time. I think COVID is going to be here to stay for the rest of my life. And my natural immunity to COVID will not only decrease, and has decreased already, but also new variants will make my natural immunity not as good anyway. Now, at the moment, the current dominant variants, this BQ1 and 1.1, are related enough to BA5 and BA4 to where I probably have some natural immunity left against them and may still be protecting me enough to where I can't get infected, but it's possible I'm vulnerable again because of the time it has passed and because the variants that are rapidly becoming more and more common aren't identical to BA4 and there may be far enough away from it to where I can get it again. I got it extremely mild, as you guys know, but it was three weeks after getting the fourth shot. So it is possible that the fourth shot there protected me somewhat and kept the symptoms pretty mild. I really have thought I'm not going to do another shot because I get sick from them and because the COVID I got was much less severe than the shot, but then I wonder, well, was it less severe because I got the shot? So I haven't made the decision 100%. It's just kind of hard for me to go voluntarily get the shot and get sick again when my actual COVID was so minor. Yeah, that really complicates it. I mean, for me, I've never had any kind of reaction at all from the shots, so it's not a big deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's definitely a big difference. Yeah, I got a little tired like a couple days later, but not the big. Yeah, it's a very big difference. If I got four shots and I didn't really feel much from any of them, I'd say, well, okay, number one, this obviously hasn't hurt me, this vaccine, because nothing's happened to me out of four shots. And number two, I, I don't really feel bad from it, so might as well do it. When you get sick for three days, then it becomes a different story. So anyway... I was at least optimistic that maybe I just don't get that sick from COVID because the one time I had it was extremely mild. Well, maybe not. First of all, I have an example of someone who is one of the three closest related people to me in the world. That would be Benjamin. The only two people equivalent in relation to me are my parents. So Benjamin has had COVID twice. In January which was likely original Omicron, and in July, late July, which was almost surely BA5. The January COVID, while long-lasting, was very mild, and it never got very bad. He had at most like a 100 fever. He was never very sick. It just kind of stuck there for a while and kept testing positive, and the symptoms really weren't improving much, but it was very cold-like and didn't really do much. By contrast, the COVID he got in late July was a lot quicker, but much more intense. He had a fever of 104. He was throwing up repeatedly. He was extremely sick and lethargic, and also had a lot of chills. 
very harsh illness. It did pass fairly quickly, and the, he really only had about, I'd say, 24 to 36 really bad hours. And then the rest of it was kind of uh, much more mild. But the bad portion of it was pretty bad. Never bad enough to where he would have been hospitalized, but as far as illnesses, it was very unpleasant to get the, between the 104 fever and the, uh, the, the vomiting. Now, I had nothing like that. When I got COVID, it was like a mild cold. I had it kind of similar to what he had, except mine, I had the symptoms for a shorter period of time. I had a lingering positive test, but as far as the symptoms I felt, it didn't last all that long. It wasn't super quick, but I it probably had symptoms for about a week, and it was very mild. In fact, the symptoms were so mild, I, I saw Trader Ruski thinking I had a cold. I was thinking, okay, well, if that's what I get again, that's, that's no big deal. It's not worth taking the vaccine for it. But there are now reports that the second bout of COVID is likely to be substantially worse than the first. And I said, hmm, that's interesting because that was Benjamin's experience. And I've spoken to some other people who told me their second time was much worse, that they had it the first time. It was not great. It wasn't fun, but it wasn't terrible. And the second time, boy, that really knocked them out, and they really are kind of fearing a third time. That's weird because you would think your immune system's already seen it, that it, it wouldn't be as bad. Yeah, I would think so, too. And uh, it was weird yeah. because Ben probably got Omicron both times, the different uh, variant, subvariant of Omicron, and boy, it was tremendously different. One was this intense but short illness, and the other one was a very mild but long illness. So couldn't be more different. I've only had it once. I can't compare. But I, I, mean, I don't it want... Could, could it have anything to do with the amount that he was initially exposed to and thus how much it was actually able to take hold and reproduce? You yeah, know? That's, that's a good question, and I don't know. Uh, the other one is that... Um, you know, maybe there was some difference in how his body reacted to the two subvariants of Omicron. But anyway, uh, they did a study, but this was a bit of a flawed study, but they did a study of the risk of death, hospitalization, and serious health issues from COVID-19 with a second infection versus a first infection. And it was found that even if you're vaccinated, that it is much worse for the second infection regarding all of these factors, the long COVID, the serious health issues from COVID, hospitalization, and even death. They said this was evident even in unvaccinated, vaccinated, and boosted people. Now, the findings, though, were drawn from the VA, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, and it was data collected from March 1st, 2020 through April 6th, 2022. This involved 443,000 patients with one COVID infection, 41,000 with two or more infections, and 5.3 million non-infected individuals. But most of these study subjects were male because it was the VA, and most people who go to the VA are male because it's uh, associated with the armed forces. Reinfected patients had a more than two times risk of death and more than a three times risk of hospitalization compared to those who only got COVID once. They also had elevated risks for problems with their lung, their heart, their blood, their kidneys, diabetes, mental health, bones and muscles, and even neurological disorders. However, there were some skeptics of this study. 
saying that, uh, number one, it was not diverse enough. It was uh, almost all men. Also, that patients at the VA tend to be older and sicker. So this group would already have a lot of health complications from COVID that the typical person wouldn't have. They said it also was not accounting for differences in the consequences of getting a reinfection of Omicron versus the original and Delta. Remember, this went from March of 2020 all the way to April of 2022. In fact, I'd say the vast, vast majority of these had to be either original or Delta because Omicron had just gotten going in uh, January or late December of uh, 2021 through January 2022 was kind of the beginning of Omicron. So this study stopped on April 6th, 2022 and had been going for two years. So most of this were people with uh, original and Delta, which are both dead. So we really should only be concerned with the more modern variants like BA5. And this study does not have BA5 at all because BA5 did not exist as of April 6th, 2022. So there's some questions of why are we even looking at this, especially because most of that data doesn't involve Omicron and they don't separate it out, which is a tremendous mistake. Why, why they don't separate it from like 2020 and 2021 and then 2022 itself, because 2022 was Omicron and the other two years were not Omicron. I don't know why they don't do that. And the people who were skeptics of this study were pointing out that's a big problem with it, aside from the fact that the group of people going to the VA are really in one demographic, older men with uh, often with health problems. The Kaiser Health News has an editor named Dr. Celine Gounder, and she said there seemed to be a plateauing effect with multiple infections with less of a jump in risk on the third infection and beyond. She said, the good news is that the better people are protected with immunity, the likely risk of developing some of the complications will be lower over time, just like Calwatt said. However, she did not say that on the second infection that it's not going to be worse, just that third and beyond, it's likely to either stay the same or get better. They were, of course, cautioning in the article that you shouldn't just feel like you're invincible if you've had it once, that uh, you can easily get it again, and reinfection does matter and that you just shouldn't assume that because it went okay the first time, it'll go okay the second time. The problem with that conclusion is that you can't hide forever from COVID. This is not a finite period of time where you can say, okay, I'll just wait this out and it'll be no COVID one day. It looks like this is here to stay. So unless you're just going to hide from it forever, it's pretty inevitable you're going to get it again. So you might as well just go forward and, and get it and if you do, you do. And then there's a lot of people who had it and don't know. So, now, Cal, why do you haven't had it easier either, right? Not yet. My kids have, though. Yeah, so you haven't had it, and Trader Ruski hasn't had it. Though I had to inform you, or maybe it's a good thing, that both of you may have had it and just been asymptomatic and just don't know. That's what I was thinking, actually, because both of our kids had it. Like, one kid brought it home from school. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I had it, but I just didn't have any symptoms. I had no reason to test because I wasn't going anywhere and I, I didn't have any symptoms. So maybe I did have it. It's it's possible. You know, when Benjamin got it... And it wouldn't show up. 
sorry, Jeff. It wouldn't show up like if either one of us got it six or eight months ago or something. There'd be no sign in our blood or anything when we had it, correct? Yeah, there probably wouldn't be after that much time. I'm not sure when the antibodies are completely gone, but yeah, it may not show up at this point if you got an antibody test. And I wonder, like, what was the story when Benjamin got COVID in January? And, you know, here I was in the same house as him, and I didn't put a lot of effort into staying away from him. I, I did stay away from him somewhat, but I didn't, like, totally isolate from him. So I did not catch it, and I thought, okay, well, maybe I've had it and I was asymptomatic in the past, or maybe the vaccine was doing its job. I got the vaccine in October of 2021. I got this uh, booster then, and this was in January of 2022. So I thought the vaccine was probably protecting me, which is very possible. There were a lot of theories, or maybe he just wasn't transmitting much. I know kids really didn't transmit much of uh, the original and Delta, but Omicron they seemed to. So I didn't know what it was. But then when he got COVID in late July, he very quickly transmitted it to his mom. So he definitely could transmit that. And the timing was exactly like what you'd expect for him to have transmitted it to her. It was about two days behind. So it looked very clear to me that he gave it to her. And the only reason I didn't get sick is because I had just had COVID about six weeks prior at the World Series of Poker. Yeah, but again, that makes sense, Druff, because you're saying that the first case was relatively mild and the second was uh, really nasty. I mean, all, all transmission is is when uh, there's a virus in your body, it's in... It's in everything, and if it's uh, it's if it's really strong, if there's a lot of it there, then there's going to be a lot of it in all of the things you exhale and fluids and all that kind of stuff. So it makes sense. I mean, you would think that, but I hadn't heard that the transmission was tied to the severity of the case. It was shown that there were some people who were transmitting big time and others who weren't transmitting at all, and some were transmitting very little, and it was never understood... I'm talking about the original COVID. I don't know about Omicron, but it was never understood why some people transmitted way more than others. But I, I hadn't read that this was tied to the severity of the infection. And in fact, a lot of people were transmitting the most when they were pre-symptomatic. So I'm not sure if that explains it, but definitely he transmitted. Well, there are two, there are two parts to the severity of an infection. So one is how much the virus has taken foothold and reproduced in your body. But there's also the reaction that your body has to it because a lot of the things that we feel uh, in terms of feeling shitty and all that kind of stuff is actually coming from our immune system, <laughs> ironically enough, kicking in and attacking the stuff. So, I mean, you're right. There are two sides to it. So it probably would be possible to have an immune system that overreacted to uh, a, a mild infection and then you'd feel terrible, but you wouldn't be able to transmit that much stuff. Yeah, I know most of the reaction actually is the immune system. In fact, a lot of the deaths from COVID, from the original COVID, were from uh, the immune system's reaction to it, yep. and, and not so much the uh, disease itself. But Well, that's what allergies are, too. Allergies are your body mistaking perfectly benign things for things that are bad for you, and then turning on all of the uh, its defenses, some of which just make you feel terrible. You know? Yeah, that's why some of the... Uh, early treatments of COVID in 2020 were focused upon reducing immune response. Yeah. And, and there's I mean, some controversy. I've got some 
nut job friends of mine that think that because they've had COVID, they're they're immune and they're never going to get it again. And I'm like, okay, good luck. Yeah, that's. <laughs> you just have to they point got to that the... natural immunity, Druff. Now they they don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, you do have to point to things like the flu and and colds and say, well, how many colds you had in your life and. Do you think you're immune to the flu because you had it as a kid, or because you had it a few years ago? And obviously, the answer is no. When these things, this uh, is this is assuming that you're talking to a reasonable person that is interested in understanding what's going on. But but they know they've had a lot of colds. Like they they should know. Like you say, well, you've had more than one cold in your life, right? That they'll say yes, and they go, how did that happen? And it's a virus. The same thing can happen where they mutate and they you don't have the immunity anymore, and. What's funny is a lot of the people who are who say things like that also criticize the vaccine for having its fast decline in immunity, which it does. And it is true that when the vaccines first came out, this wasn't known. And this is a flaw with the vaccine that it really doesn't last very long. So that's a frequent criticism from anti-vax people saying it's just not worth it. It doesn't give you enough protection for a long enough time, even if it does work. But then that would also show that natural immunity probably has the same problem. Uh, now, where there was a mistake with natural immunity on the other side is that uh, there was there was a lot of irrational behavior from the left that wouldn't consider natural immunity to be as good as the vaccine. So, if you had actual COVID, that for some reason wasn't good enough as far as going out in public. But if if you get the vaccine instead of having actual COVID, then then you're safe to go out in public. It never made any sense because. It was found that natural immunity is at least a little bit better and maybe a lot better than the vaccine as far as its efficacy. But it it does fade just like uh, the vaccine does. And it's not even known. It would make sense that it was better, though. I mean, because I I find there's just a whole lot of misunderstanding about how vaccines work to begin with. Like traditional vaccines, what they would do is they would take – essentially watered down versions of the actual virus and inject it into you so your body could have a reaction to a mild version of whatever it was and you know then it would be good to go the mrna stuff they're essentially building uh spike proteins that look like they're coming from the virus so they don't have to take the actual covid and inject it in you they inject something that is covid like looking so that your body starts an immune system, builds up the the T-cells and all that kind of stuff to try to attack it. So they both work the same way, but it makes sense that uh, the natural immunity would be somewhat better because it is the actual full thing, not just, uh, you know, some of the spike proteins from it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, so it makes sense that it would be longer. I, I don't love the messaging of the left said this the right said this i think it again we talked about this before but it would be like if i was taking uh, my financial advice based on whatever the la dodgers said to do versus whatever the new york mets decided like it just doesn't make any sense like listen to medical doctors and medical professionals don't listen to the left don't listen to the right it's a public health matter. It's a. It is not a political matter. So I don't. I don't love the framing of the left did this, the right did that. But I agree with you that there were people who thought that natural immunity is much better, and uh, you know there, it makes sense to that to some extent it would be. But I know people that think that because they've had it, they say they're pure blood. You know, they, their blood hasn't been tainted by a vaccine. Um, and they 
they think that they're never going to get COVID again, which is just ridiculous. But people uh, who think that vaccines are better, like in <clears throat> in terms of the immunity, that never made sense to me either. Because, again, you're putting something that is COVID-like in there. Of course, it's not going to train, or I wouldn't intuitively think that it would train your body as well as the actual thing. But the big benefit is that you don't get COVID, yeah, right? Which can and, be really bad. And that's the thing. Yeah. All the studies have, have shown that it, it seems the natural immunity does do better than the vaccine. Yeah, it it's a question sense. of how much better, but it's a, it does seem to do better. And for sure, it's not worse. So it, that, I never understood that approach to it. So yeah, there, I, I only talked to the left and right there to show that there was misunderstanding or maybe even intentional misunderstanding on both sides about natural immunity from different directions. But people shouldn't be listening to politicians about public health concerns anyway. They should be going to their doctor. They shouldn't even be doing their own research. They should be going to their doctor. <laughs> you know? I mean, really. Well, provided the doctors are properly informed. Some of them have the wrong advice. That is true. Too. <laughs> that is true. But anyway. There are, the, you, there are definitely quacks out there. Yeah, that is for sure true. Yeah, you should always also do your own research. And, there's, you know, there's a lot you can read. I'm not just saying believe everything you read. But, you know, take it all in and then come up with your best conclusion. And that's what I've said the whole way. After so, talking with your doctor, yes. <laughs> so I, what I've come to from this whole thing with the second infection is... I, I have some anecdotal evidence, very anecdotal, that my son got a much worse second infection than first. Uh, but that doesn't mean much on its own. I've known others that have had that. I've also known others who have had a milder second infection, so maybe there's no pattern. But I don't think that this study, this particular study, says very much since it was about a very specific group that is more likely to have bad COVID outcomes anyway. So you really can't compare. Like, like what if someone said, okay, well, we've done this study of 90-year-olds and, and COVID, so this is what we found. And you go, okay, that's interesting. Okay, so, so for yourself, who's 50, uh, the, you, know, you need to take the same advice. Go, well, wait a minute, hold on, I'm not 90. That that's, uh, doesn't necessarily apply to me. So that, that's the problem here is uh, it can be a completely different pattern for people who are more, more vulnerable than those who were less vulnerable, and especially those yep. who have uh, really much less vulnerability, such as kids and young adults. Yep. So that, that's that's the big problem here. To With COVID especially, you need to make sure it stretches across all demographics, especially age and especially prior health. Those are two very big things with COVID outcomes is, do you have any major health problems coming in, and how old are you? And if the answer is old or yes i have a lot of major pre-existing problems or even one major ex pre-existing problem then yeah that, that separates you from the average person who does not have those factors and yeah age obesity and pre-existing conditions are the the biggest ones that i've seen yeah that, those are really the big three and and age is the biggest one uh, yep. but uh yeah that's that's really different once you change those variables. So I, I'm not that impressed by this conclusion from this particular study from the VA. I, I don't know why, if they're going to do that, why they don't at least separate out the Omicron. That's another huge mistake. I, I'm always annoyed by these where lack of separation of the Omicron in studies. Like you think it's such a basic thing to do. Once you have something that you're admitting is as a 90% uh, lower death rate right there, you've got to go, okay, we're not going to lump this in. <laughs> 
we can have a, a separate statistic where we lump it in, but we really all studies have to separate these out. You have to separate Omicron from the others. Delta and the original were fairly similar with the death outcomes and hospitalization outcomes. I think Delta was yeah. a little bit worse, but they were pretty close. Omicron is so different. You, you got to separate it out or the studies become worthless. And that's, that's the other thing that I give you enormous credit for, because I've seen a whole lot of people that have not been doing it, but I saw people that the same people who were very cavalier about, you know, don't need to get vaccinated. It's just the flu, all that kind of stuff. Now that the virus actually has mutated into being something that is is actually more like the flu, now they're just saying, yeah, see, we were right all along. And I'm like, no, man, you, you can't do that. Like the original strain and, and Delta were so different in terms of the, the death rates and the vir- virulence. Like you, you just can't do that. It's like you said, they're almost like it's a, a different disease. But they're, I, I've met some people that are kind of, retconning things to be like see told you it's just the flu we had nothing to worry about yeah and i i actually had this discussion at a live card room recently the subject of covid came up and people talked about you know their case of it and how bad it was and how bad it wasn't and the question i always ask was was this 2022 or was this 20 or 21 and They sometimes they'll be asked why, and I was like, because it's two very different diseases. The Omicron is just so much less dangerous, even if you do get very sick from it. Just the the chance of it doing something bad was so much lower, especially if you're not really old. So uh, I'm just curious which one it was, and and I was explaining like a lot of people they just didn't know. I was I was explaining like it's so different now. I like these are people yep. sitting there like they're kind of near my age. So I said, you know people around our age were actually in danger of dying of, of the original COVID and Delta. Uh, we were in danger of lung damage and, and permanent effects of this that yeah. really are not that much of a factor anymore. The danger from those in 2020 and 2021 and the ones now are a tremendous difference. It's a tremendous difference. and you, So you have to separate them. You can't look at it as the same thing. And I told them, look, I'm sitting here right now in a live card room, and I have no problem with it, and, uh, and I've been here a lot. I wouldn't go anywhere in 2020 because I didn't have a vaccine, and I was very afraid of getting it. In 2021, I got a vaccine, and I went out again, and then uh, I, 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 when I, it started to fade, I'm like, okay, I better get this booster. Like I, I was so much more concerned about it, and, and once it became this, it, it changed. So this is something I don't yeah. want to have again, but... I know it's going to happen, and the, the fear I have of it is tremendously less than it was before. But for most people, they just don't really know the difference. And so some of them retconned it, as you say, to make it seem like they were right all along. There's others who intentionally ignore that it's much less deadly so they can go the other way and chide those for not taking it seriously today, saying, oh, look at all the death uh, that happened from this and not keeping in mind how different it is. And then there's a lot who right. just don't know. There's a lot who really just think it's all the same thing. That is, yeah, it's a different variant, yeah. but it's, it's basically the same risk, and we're just going to well, deal with it. it's tough to understand, right? If you're, let's say you're, you're living your life, and you, you don't have a ton of time to go into researching this, that, and the other thing. You know, it's called COVID. It's still called COVID. It's called COVID originally. You know, I've, I've tangentially heard something about this variant thing, but the idea that the outcome is going to be that different just because it's a variant of the same thing, like, I, I get it. I get how that is not the most intuitive thing in the world. 
<clears throat> but I will say that I'm glad that we avoided getting COVID, either the original or Delta. And uh, if I got it, like I have no idea if I ever got it, but when the kids got it, I'm glad that it was uh, Omicron, you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's why I thought when I when I when I like by the time I found out I was positive, I had already had it for a few days and had thought it was a cold. So by then I wasn't even concerned. I'm like, okay, well, I, I've had it for some time and it was so weak that I, I didn't even believe it was COVID. So obviously I'm not that concerned here, and it turned into nothing. But yeah, it was something I when I had it, I did think you know I'm glad this is Omicron because I, I bet I would yeah. not have experienced Delta this way. I bet that would have been pretty miserable. And it was weird. We we had one kid, or both kids had it. One kid had it a little worse than the other, but neither were particularly bad. Um, and again, if, if I had it, I never had any symptoms, so I have no idea. But it, it's strange that, because uh, our kids were, were vaccinated too, you know? Um, but it's interesting. And also, kids are supposedly less likely to get it. But I, I guess that is uh, just a testament to how lots of kids together like if any of them have it probably others are going to get it you know yeah though less in, in uh, less of a situation than with the flu or colds because a big problem with kids is they're touching everything and not washing their hands and right uh, very careless with that and then that causes colds and flu to spread air spread around in schools tremendously with uh they they spread in the air too but uh, just the surface danger just is so much higher for kids than adults but with COVID, since there's no surface danger, it, it uh, with kids, it's more of just them all being in the same room for all those hours together. And it's not a tremendous number of people, but it's still enough. You know, you have 30 kids in the same room for six hours. Uh, if someone has COVID in there, then yes, uh, then there's a decent chance that some of the other kids will get it. And now, ben- you know what's going around now is uh, just upper respiratory infections. So they're calling them uh, HRIs or whatever. That's something that is uh, like at least in in our schools, a whole it's taken out a whole lot of kids. Like a whole lot of them are getting it, and it's it it's not COVID. It's a, you know some other kind of upper respir- respiratory infection, but lots of them are getting it, and it's spreading spreading like wildfire with the kids. Well, are these just colds? Is that what it is? Um, they I mean they're they're called HRIs, I guess. I guess cold, flu, or any of those upper respiratory type thing, they're kind of lumping it together. Okay. I remember in uh, sixth grade, I got sick, and like more than half the school seemed to be sick. Like it was really, it was a really, really contagious version of the flu. And it it was amazing how that guy, I would look at the absence list when I came back for the week. And not only was I on there, but like a lot of the classes I was in, more than half the class was out and usually didn't see that. So there was a particularly bad one that was just very contagious for whatever reason. And, you know, that, that happened once in a while. But usually I, I didn't see that very often when I was in school. That That was the one time I remember it was particularly bad. And it was a real flu, though. It wasn't a cold. I remember I had a fever and... Yeah, you know, all all the flu type symptoms that you would expect. So it's probably something. So, uh, just uh, just because I'm curious, did you already do the the uh, political stuff or you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I did oh, it you already. Did do that already? But, you know, if you want to make some comments, you can. Then then we'll shut it down. I I don't really have any comments. I okay. just wanted to hear it. I was interested. It's interesting to me that 
the race is still, uh, you know, a couple of them are still being counted. I got some uh, uh, some people I know that are already, you know, screaming about uh, elections being stolen and fraudulent. And I'm like, all right, well, show me show me the evidence of of that, and we'll take a look at it. Yes, yeah, so there, there is. That's none the so one far. thing. I, that's the one thing I didn't cover. I covered how it was stupid to question the 2020 election, and that hurt Republicans this time around. But yeah. I did not cover the current claims that this election had uh, any kind of theft of uh, votes or false votes in there, any kind of rigging in there. And in short, I don't believe it. In short, no. the, the bottom line is yeah. what's, what's happened is that uh, bad candidates were run by a lot of Republicans and also just the a number of factors came together to where a number of people were turned off from voting Republican, even if the candidate wasn't bad. There was just enough things that, that bothered certain groups of voters, like single women under 40, which either motivated yeah. them to come out and vote <laughs> or, or uh, motivated those who were in the middle to vote Democrat instead of Republican. So well, was, I don't mean just... Uh, the the right saying that there was because you know obviously it didn't go the way that a lot of people were thinking or hoping it would go. It's just it, anybody that if the election is something that uh, like I, I see people saying you know you should count all the vo- the votes on election day and that's it, right? So once election day is over, you should be done and you should not keep counting. And I'm like, well, that's that's just not how it works. As long as it, they've got to take the mail-in votes, as long as they're postmarked by the right day, you know. In other words, people not being aware of the way things are done and then thinking it's nefarious because it's not what they think or it doesn't work out the way that they want it to be. Or, or any election that is close, but then there are certain uh, things that need to be counted and then it swings the other way. You know, whichever way it swings, uh, people are just... I guess naturally suspicious of that, yes. but I'm like, look, you, you have to have, you can't just be like, well, I don't like what happened. Therefore they cheated. You have to have something like some evidence of their, it actually being fraudulent. Right. You know? Well, yeah, I do have to say that I don't like this early voting thing, especially where, where people just automatically receive ballots in the mail to go then mail back. And a good example of why this can be harmful was in the Pennsylvania Senate race where a lot of people had already voted by the time John Fetterman had that debate where it was clear he couldn't even put a sentence together. And you can't just go up. I didn't like the way he was in that debate. I didn't like the fact that it looks like he can't uh, coherently speak. I want to take back my vote. You can't. It's too late. No matter what he did or said in that debate, your vote has been cast for him already if you've early voted. So there's a reason why there's an election day. There's a reason why we don't vote for the 2024 president right now. Like, why not? Why don't we have two years early voting where we can decide who to vote for now? What what do people declare the candidacy now? And I could say, okay, I'm going to vote for Ron DeSantis for uh, president in 2024. Well, because maybe something will happen between now and 2024 that'll sure. make me not like Ron DeSantis. And, and so I won't want to vote for him. So you can say the same thing with any early voting that – there's something that may be found out later on or that occurs later on that you won't be able to take your vote back. So that's the reason we have an election day. And yes, they've always had absentee voting 
for people who can't make it. So you're you're leaving the area and you can't be there on that day. Or one of other reasons that you could vote. But this was something you had to request. It required a little effort to get established. It's not just there's a ballot waiting for you just sitting there on your counter that you can just ship in at any time uh, a month before the election. So people who are proponents of this early voting through the mail that's very easy is, well, anything that makes it easier for people to vote, why would you ever say you want it to be hard for people to vote? Why not make it easy for everyone to do it? And my response is because then people will be voting too early and won't have the full information, and then that can skew a race, and it can unfairly benefit a candidate who has something bad occur after the early voting has taken place. You really need to have the voting take place in a short period of time, and you really shouldn't have a large segment of the voters already having voted a while before the election. And the absentee voters used to be pretty small group, so it couldn't majorly affect it. So this could have made the difference in Pennsylvania. Who knows? Well, that argues for, um, or that argues for it being okay that elections are not decided on election day, right? I, I agree with you. Like it makes sense. Hold your vote until the last possible minute, you know, because maybe something will happen that will change your mind or or whatever. Um, but if if people are going to do that, and some people want to mail them in, or they have to mail them in, or whatever, and you want them to wait until the last possible moment, not all elections are going to be able to be called on election day. Sorry, like it's just not going to be possible, <laughs> especially if they're mailing it in on on election day. You know, all it has to do is be postmarked by then. You know, but anyway, I mean, the the real point is just. You know, no matter which side it is or or whatever, just people whining because they didn't get the outcome they wanted and inventing nefarious stuff that has gone on. We we had an election here that was really close, and the guy said he he wasn't gonna uh, he was gonna refuse to admit that he lost. Thankfully, he I, I thought it was gonna be like from the Trump playbook where he's you know going to refuse refute and take it to court and do all that kind of stuff thankfully he did the right thing he got the information that he wanted from the election board he was satisfied with it and he said okay i concede you know and i'm glad that that went the right way but i think a lot of the uh people complaining about the elections are just people that uh whatever election they're complaining about didn't go the way they wanted it to and they don't like it, so they're just inventing bullshit. You know, I've I've yet to see anything, and I'm I'm very much all for any kind of voter fraud should be dealt with. You know, a hundred percent. I'm not against suppressing anything, but I haven't seen any yet. You know, nothing nothing credible anyway. Yeah, I haven't either. And I mentioned earlier in the show that I've actually seen election denial on both sides, like Stacey Abrams of yes. Georgia the first time around, which she ran, yeah. uh, she lost by 55,000 votes and claimed that voter suppression is why she lost and otherwise she, that she yep. really was the, the governor of Georgia and that she got cheated. And that was total nonsense yeah. for 55,000 votes. And, and there was a lot on the left that were backing this. It wasn't just, oh, Stacey's crazy, whatever, she happens to be on our side, but we don't agree. Like A lot of people on the left are going, ah, oh, she was cheated, voter suppression, and going, that, that's nuts. So and then when Trump did the well, same yeah, thing, and that's uh, why I didn't say. That's why I didn't name a particular side. Yeah, I just yeah, said I know, I know. it didn't I go know. the way you wanted. But like the Bobert race, like that's still up in the air, right? Like apparently, yeah. there, there's still. And and listen, I'm just going to be totally transparent. I think she's not a very intelligent person. 
And <laughs> whether it's a Democrat or Republican, I think that they would be better served by somebody else being there. So my bias is I hope that she loses. But there are people it has swung back in her favor and people were like people, uh, you know, who support the Democratic candidate are like, this is not fair. This is cheating. I'm like, there's, there's no there's no evidence of that. You know, it's just they're being counted. Uh, the votes that are being counted are in, are in a community that happened to support Republicans. That's just the way it is, you know. Yeah, I actually didn't want her to win either because I, I want all of the uh, embarrassing Republicans who do and say stupid things to lose so the, the whole party can look better and the, the more it has people who are dragging it down with dumb rhetoric, then it makes the whole party well, I know, look I bad. I know plenty of people that are, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Republicans that are unhappy at the direction that things have been taking and are, are would be happy if the... Uh, the Trumpers were kind of excised from the party, but I, I'm just in terms of Bobert. I just look at her as just not a very intelligent human that probably has gotten more attention in her life than she ever should have, and we just like her to not be there. To be honest, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I, there's been a change in the way a lot of uh, Republicans think since this election, and a lot of them are starting to sour on on Trump and and his supporters and. A lot of these type of candidates, and, th- and that part's good. And I said that earlier in the show that that's the one upside for Republicans here is that maybe this was needed to get better candidates nominated in the first place. Because if they just kept winning with crap candidates or barely squeaking by with them, then the message would be okay, well, just nominate whoever you want, and the Democrats suck enough to we beat them anyway. And uh, then when they have a very disappointing election, then you could say, okay, well, you know what? The candidate quality does matter. What do you know? Yeah. So that now it- well, that is true, though. Winning cures everything, right? So if if the Trump-backed candidates, if they did sweep it, I mean, it, the, it would carry on, right? It would that's what I was on. afraid I'm of. Sure that's, that, that's why I was saying, yeah. you know what? If, if they get 54 Senate seats and get 35, 40 more House seats, that they're going to for sure nominate even more bad candidates next time around. So yeah. maybe this yeah. is actually good for the 2020s uh, Republican Party that this occurred so they can reform. Well, and at some point, no matter no matter which uh, side you align yourself with, at some point, you have to realize that these are all people that are going to be running our country. And it would be nice if we had competent ones there, you know, regardless of which side they were from. I, I just, it amazes me that people are putting team first as opposed to putting, uh, looking at the... Uh, the quality of the the person that is going there. I mean, there there are some absolute shit candidates on both sides. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, come on, like Bobert and and Herschel Walker. I mean, it's, give me a break. Like these, it's just I I wouldn't have either of these two babysit my kids, let alone <laughs> running something in the government. You know what I mean? Uh. Well, I, you know, I've had these thoughts with with, with Democrats. I, I've been back and forth in my mind of like. Would I rather that the Democratic Party reforms itself and stops with a lot of their stupid positions that nobody likes? So yeah. that would be better for the country because these things won't be pushed anymore. But it, for Republicans, it would be a lot harder to beat them at that point. So I think, well, this is this makes them more beatable in elections. And if if they don't learn their lesson, like from this election, they're going to go, oh, great, you know, full speed ahead. <laughs> we we didn't have midterm losses. We're doing everything well, even even with the inflation. I guess people like us. Okay, well, uh, more of the same. And that, that's even Biden himself said, 
I'm not going to change anything. They actually asked him. He said he's not going to change anything. So uh, from a political standpoint of one who wants to see the Democrats lose in future elections, yeah. that's good. But then I go, well, yeah, but then this is going to hurt the country. Like, I, I don't want to see this stuff happening. I, it's, so that's the problem is it, what, what can make the Democrats more vulnerable is also stuff I don't want to see happen. So I, I go, you know what, maybe I'd just rather the Democrats reform and, and act more sensible and go back to what they were 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, they'll be harder to beat, but at least there'll be fewer things happening that, that lack any sense. So I, yeah. I, uh, I, I go back and forth with, what I want to see from that, and I guess there's good and bad Makes to take sense. from it. And I, I think that they they think the same of the right that they, in one way, they're happy that there's these uh, crazy candidates. And I know that in some cases they actually uh, were paying to promote them, so they'd go against the easier <laughs> candidate. But then it can backfire. They, the same thing happened with Trump in 2016. They they uh, yeah. CNN and other left wing mainstream media outlets gave him a ton of free exposure on purpose so he might beat the Republican field and then he did. He easily beat the Republican field and then he'd be the candidate and the thought would be, well, he's going to be so awful that Hillary will easily walk to victory instead of having to face someone tougher and then, oops, then he actually won oops. and, oh no, we, we yeah. didn't mean to do that. We thought we, we'd just take him as an easily beatable candidate. Uh-oh. Now he won and now now we're saying this is so terrible and uh, how's America going to survive this and go, well, you know, guys, you, you kind of tried to prop him up to be your opponent just thinking he can't win. And that's the possible consequence is that sometimes they can win. So that's, that's yeah, uh, sure. along the same lines. Yeah, no, for sure. And again, yeah, I don't want to, especially if you already did it, I don't want to rehash it. And I've got a, a meeting I got to pop on to in about seven minutes anyway, but I just wanted to wanted to see if you already covered that, and then if you've noticed. I mean, I, I, I hope that this doesn't turn into another election denying nonsense. I hope it's just people chirping with sour grapes, and it kind of sputters out. You know. Yeah. Assuming that there is no election fraud, obviously, any any election fraud that is real should be looked into a hundred percent. Right, but it was all that Mr. Peanut guy down in, in Tampa Bay that, you know, was on tape. Oh, we're just going to announce it, blah, blah, blah. So let's not deny that that's what started a lot of this bullshit. Well, there's there's lots of – well, any race that's really close, I can understand the inclination if you're, if it's close and your candidate is ahead and then, and then it's the two days past election day and then the other candidate surges ahead. And I can understand – the inclination to no, think that sure, something's because, going on, but, it, up, but it's... Right. Because that's just because all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, everybody's a fucking, you know, genius when it comes to science and, and elections. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's been going on forever. Right. Right? What, you know, so... Well, it's, you know, something did change recently, though. Here's a problem. is huh? It did change. Because of COVID, they, they loosened a lot of the voting procedures and you could vote a lot earlier and there's a lot more mail-in voting so what happened was there became a lot more of these 
late votes being counted, where there's massive amounts of votes being counted after election day. So you see the candidate that you like ahead by twenty or right. thirty thousand votes, and then guess what? A few days later, they've lost. And you're like, what the hell? So you know, if you if you're looking well, we at this, we see this all the time, though, Druff. Like, if uh, certain counties are counted first that have lots that vote for one side. It comes in and didn't, if I remember correctly, the election, uh, 2016 election, wasn't Hillary projected to be ahead by like 18 points or something and then just got absolutely demolished? Like he just kept on going down and down well, and down. What was, even worse, like what was even worse for her was that the early voting in Nevada, that was one of the early voting states at the time, was yeah. favoring her so much that she was doing better there than the polls were saying she would do. So so she was outperforming mm. the polling data in the first place that they had. So they're like, wow, she's going to do even better than we thought. Trump's going to get killed. That's what I thought, too. I go, wow, okay. If she, he's getting beat down so much in Nevada, which is considered a close state, then uh, the, the, he's dead. Well, it turned out Nevada was one of only two states where she outperformed the polls of, of states that were considered close. I'm not talking about New York or something where it's 100% she was going to win. I'm talking about anywhere right. that there's even a chance that uh, Trump could win, that a chance but not sure he would win, so not deep red or deep blue states. Of any kind of state that was kind of in the middle, the only two that she outperformed the polling data was Nevada and Colorado, so the Nevada thing turned out to be misleading because most of the other states, she wildly underperformed compared to the polling data. And that's why it was such a shock to everybody. That was one of several reasons, actually. Yeah. But anyway, my point is that it's not like it's unusual or new to see one candidate be behind and then the other one surge ahead. Like people should be aware as different counties are, are, are counted and all that kind of stuff that this, is, this happens. You know, I don't, I don't get it. I think a well, lot of it's just sour grapes. It is, but again, it's partially because now you're seeing it days later and seeing it hours later, like, okay, well, earlier they're counting these counties that are mostly blue and now the red counties are coming in later and now there's a big jump. That's a little easier for the general public to understand and accept than you go to bed with a candidate you like being a lot ahead and you wake up and all of a sudden they're behind. And you're like, what yeah. the hell? Or especially if it happens two or three days later, then it, it they can start to easily believe that some mysterious forces that are working behind the scenes have just dumped in a bunch of fake mail votes to push across the candidate that they want to win. And that's uh, but that's an invention, right? I mean, it's an invention. It, it is an it's invention. Not but like you're saying it because you have some reason to say it it's just because it's it's you know it's just making it up in your mind like i see lauren lauren bobert who like i said i have no lost love for i see her surging ahead and winning and i am never going to that place where i'm like they cheated you know unless i see something that says that there is a there is something nefarious going on then i'll be like okay look into it and let's find it out it's just it's crazy to me that so people are so hair triggered to be like isn't that suspicious they counted it four days later at the the dark of night and you know they make it sound all sinister and i'm like okay well what's the evidence what is it well and that's <laughs> you know, the problem is people just aren't used to seeing this coming days later and that's yeah. why i think the optics are bad and while i understand it you understand it i can see why this can look bad and why even without any kind of proof that this is happening 
why people can jump to that. Like, wow, isn't that weird? Days after the election, all of a sudden, the 30,000 vote lead is gone. Oh, how is that possible? So this can be... I still want to live through another two years of hearing about a stolen election. No, I I don't either. And I've never been been a stolen election proponent. I've never been one who says that sort of thing. Except for with John F. Kennedy, which really was a stolen election. But that's so long ago now that, you know, we don't have to worry about that. But they, you can go look into that one. That was a very interesting situation, even though it was before I was born. But that that was a real case where corrupt officials were manufacturing votes. And uh, Nixon got screwed there. He ultimately became president, ultimately had to resign his second term, but uh, he was screwed in I the think first there place. Are- there are some bad things about there being everyone having a camera and there being surveillance cameras everywhere. There's some bad things about it, about everything being connected. But I tell you, man, it is hard to get away with with anything, <laughs> you know. Let alone something as that is being as closely watched as this election and election fraud. Like I, I'm sure some idiot's going to try it, but it would be very hard to get away with it. I would think. Yeah, it is a lot harder to get away with, and especially on a mass level. When you're talking about a, I do. A few I'm sorry votes. to do this, Jeff, but I do have to run. I've okay. got a uh, a client meeting. Oh, I that's fine. Get to, that's but fine. Thanks We've for having me forever on. Anyway, okay. Uh, bye bye. Good day, Calwat. I was gonna say good night. It's getting so so damn late. Okay, well, um, uh, we're gonna shut this down here. But uh, really, everybody would be served better to not talk about voter fraud of any kind, whether it's. Uh, voter fraud allegations, voter suppression allegations, anything that isn't obvious where you can say, okay, that was some form of cheating, then uh, you know, if, if you have something obvious and you can bring it out and show that it made the difference in the election, then by all means do it. Anything unsubstantiated or something that couldn't have made enough of a difference to have changed the election result then you shouldn't say. It's a very bad look. It makes the whole country look bad. It makes your own political party look bad. It's just something that shouldn't be done. You just got to accept that a loss occurred and look how to counter it next time. And that's pretty much it. So anyway, this is a very long show. I'm debating now whether I'm going to split this in the archives into two episodes and make it just an FTX episode and then everything else or if to do it as one it's going to take a while to edit I, I don't know I might split this into two and this will almost make it feel like you have two shows to listen to a few days apart that's what that's what I did when we had our super long anniversary show our 10 year anniversary show but that was like 13 hours that one I had to split this one I think it's about nine It'll be a little bit less when I edit out the little break I took but still, very long. I knew it would be long. And uh, thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on and sticking with us for these uh, hours here. And that's it. I, I'm done. And I'll throw something in thank, the archives. Whether thank it's- you, Jeff. I am looking forward to hearing the whole show. And I do want to – I think it would be good to put up the FPX stuff separate, even if you do the whole show and then just make that other part separate. Because I think a lot of non-poker people are going to be really interested in the FTX stuff. So. That, that's that's another good reason. Is talk. that yeah? That's another good reason. Yeah. Is that uh, there's some interest outside of poker to hear that, and 
they they may not yeah. want to hear the political yeah, like, stuff at the beginning like, and then the, the poker stuff after. Men's yeah, oh, the men's yeah. group again. Okay, I, I I would get the music for that, but I. They, I'm too lazy. They've been very interested in that topic, so I've been sharing. I shared that 30 minute thing you put on. I'm sure they'd love some more. So, okay, I appreciate it, brother. I've got a meeting too. We will talk later, and uh, have a great week. Okay, you too. Have a good day, Trader Risky. You too. Wait. Well, this is a long one. I knew it. I knew this is gonna be a show that I was not going to get through quickly. Whenever I have like a long topic and then I have to do a lot of other topics, well, I don't have to do anything but when I choose to do a lot of topics. I know it'll be very long. It didn't help that I spoke for half an hour at the beginning of the show that didn't broadcast anywhere. Anyway, you might be hearing this as part of a two-parter. In fact, I don't know if I put this at the end of part one or part two. Probably part two. Probably be the end of part two. I'm probably going to have to make another one of these after the fact for part one. So if you hear one of these at the end of part one, it's actually something I recorded later. Which I don't do very often, but occasionally when I'm editing, if there's something I have to fix and then it makes the context wrong or something I'll occasionally uh, quickly record like a minute or so to bridge it together better sometimes what you think you're hearing is really not what you're hearing I don't do much of that but occasionally I do occasionally I will have to re-record very short snippets to bridge everything together better Other things I will do when I'm editing, in case you're wondering, like if I get a phone call that doesn't really fit in very well with a segment, but happen to be in the middle of a segment, I'll move it. Stuff like that, just to make the show more listenable. But I don't really edit content from the standpoint like I don't want you to hear it, because you you basically hear everything. It's just the way you hear it can be different. I like to present an authentic show. But there's also something to having a show that sounds good. So I like to strive for both in the archives. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. Shalom.